Thank you for joining us on our journey here to preserve the history of mixed martial arts. When I wanted to take on this project, I needed help. I brought in one of my favorite matchmakers, Miguel Iterate, and the MMA detective, Mike Davis. So to do this, we've been able to preserve history. Welcome and enjoy. Hey, Miguel Dorati back here on the Lights Out Podcast. As always, the MMA detective, Mike Davis here. And uh, we're about to be joined by the boss, Chris Lytle, with another 50 Fight Club member. And we're going to be off on another deep dive, this time with veteran Rich Clemente, definitely one of the old school guys uh, that we've got access to. And I've been looking forward to this for a long time. What do we got for Rich, Mike? I know we can't do it all with him. No, so... Rich, although he's from the Bayou, and, and I think he had some time in like the Massachusetts area for a while. He's from Jersey, or I had an association. Jersey, like Jersey. yeah, just the North you know, that upper summer. region. He actually had a lot of interactions here in the Midwest. Like he, he would bring his team around. Um, I think he got in a fist fight with a promoter at one point because he was stiffing everybody. I, all of it's going to come up. Like I, I actually have an old school file on him. Um, between my file and the fights, I think, I think it was like 22, 23 hours total of really just digging into his career was spent and, um, he's a talker. So it's a good thing. Um, I think we're going to get some real good stories out of him. So I am pretty excited. Yeah. I'm excited. I haven't, I obviously haven't talked to him in more than more than a decade, you know, but what I remember is I remember a guy who would be, you know, like some of the fighters show up and they just want, you know, tell me when the weigh-ins are. I'll go do this, that, and the other thing. But Rich was a guy who was always looking for opportunities, always looking for to see things were going well, too, you know. And uh, smart cat, a lot of stuff going on. Um, you know, he ran shows while he was fighting, incredibly difficult to do. Um so we'll see what we get, but I think yeah. that uh, I think that he's going to teach us a few things about the way things were in the nineties. I agree, and you know he he held like you said he had multiple hats. He match made, he promoted, he fought. So it's a guy that understands multiple facets of the fight industry, and a fighter will generally tell you, "Oh, I, I know what they go through," but then when they experience it, they go, "Wait a minute, this is a completely different ball game." As well as like you and I, Miguel, you know, being on the fighter side, those, you know, six to eight week camps, you know, we, we, we can't really wrap our head around because, you know, we're not going through them either. But I will ask everybody, if you guys enjoy this stuff, it helps us out. If you like, share, subscribe, leave a like five-star review on iTunes. If you guys help us, we can continue making this work and it grows. Like we're showing like a little bit of growth every episode. And the only way that continues is, is with likes and shares. So we really appreciate it. Every single person that does it, we, it's, it's sincerely appreciated. So with that, Miguel, why don't we, why don't we get started? Let's bring on the fighters. We got Chris Lytle and Original Manti here in short order. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Very happy to have everybody here. Uh, one of my favorite things, deep dives. We got good news here. Got one of the old school guys like myself. Guys had a ton of fights, and this is a guy who, like the other old school guys, he earned his way to the big dance. He earned his way to the UFC because the dude had probably 30 fights before he even got there. Maybe more. I don't know. Guy fought forever. Um, I was fortunate enough to be on the Ultimate Fighter 4 with this guy. Always been a great competitor and a good guy. Rich Clemente. How you doing, brother? 
Doing great, man. Doing great. And, you know, absolutely love seeing you. Chris, I've been bumping into you a lot lately, so that's a pleasure as well. <laughs> I know. I hadn't seen you for years, and then I started seeing you at some fights, so it's been awesome. Yep, absolutely. Definitely good to see you, Rich. Uh, you look good. What, what's going on here? I'm, I'm, we'll let Mike take over, but you, what, what's going on? You look like you, you went from no love to doctor love. What's going on with the with the outfit, dude? Yeah, so, so you know, I kind of uh, uh, spent years punishing and trying to hurt people, right? Put them in the hospital, and now I'm, uh, uh, you know, doing the exact opposite, try, trying to help people. Uh, just to really kind of sum it up, I guess, uh, um, uh, I was dealing with so many physical issues myself um, that I, I, I was really chasing a lot of physical problems, and, and that really intrigued me. So uh, um, that's what kind of drew me into uh, medicine to begin with. And really, I specialize and deal mostly in pain management. So uh, uh, I'm a, a distributor. Uh, I work directly for myself, but represent some really great products. Um, I was lucky enough to be involved in launching a few like Fortune 500 products as well, too. Um, but bringing them to market, I like really like new technologies. Uh, high pressure sales is super exciting. Like if it wasn't for this space, like I don't know what I'd be doing, to be honest, because you have the highs and lows. You know, I, I deal with some really smart guys as far as you know, trying to get them convinced to change their habits. That's tough to do. So in medical sales, the highs are the highs and then uh, the lows are the lows, you know? So uh, I've done a lot of different things in business, but but this is, is definitely the most rewarding because I get all that personal reward at the same time, get to help people at the same time. And, you know, it really doesn't get too much better than that. Now, Rich, real quick, do you think that like a competitiveness you had fighting everything, is that just translate over? Is this just a different market avenue for it? Oh, absolutely. It was funny. I was at a big sales convention uh, um, about uh, probably about, I don't know, like four weeks ago. And uh, um, one of the competitor managers came up to me and he, he, he sat, he's totally drunk too, and uh, came up to me at the bar and he's like, you know, you're just a little too pushy and a little bit too competitive. I said, I take that as the best compliment you can. Absolutely. The next yeah. drink. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> as he's like, as he's like a forty-year-old, like a, a manager that's had the same position for the last twenty years, you know. Yeah. No thanks, buddy. You just keep your life goals. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. So, Rich, you uh, you've transitioned from the MMA world, and we're gonna uh, take you back. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna take you back. I mean, once I get going, it's gonna be like kind of like a little freight train. So I'm just kind of asking to kind of keep things in order. Yeah, Something going on with the printer. I hope I can remember. <laughs> I think we'll be good. But Chris, do you want to start with, you know, your, 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 your questions that, uh, you know, how we got involved and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, man. I mean, I, I know you have kind of a wrestling background. Go, what sports did you do and what got you into combative sports? What got you into MMA? So I'm going to say a name that probably, uh, well, one person I know really knows well on this, uh, uh, on this conversation right here, but um, it, it was, I wrestled in high school and uh, um, was in the military at the time, actually United States Navy. And, um, you know, my, my, just so you would go way back, my senior year of high school is when the, the Ultimate Fighter Championship came out, right? UFC, UFC won. And yeah. I don't know how it was for you, Chris. Like, most generally, most people in the sport remember that first time. And, I mean, what a spectacle, you know? And um, what, what all the tough kids did in my school was we all signed up and we did this tournament. And we put in $50 each, right? So there was maybe about 30 tough kids in my high school and around wow. the surrounding areas that uh, all pitched in $50 and my name got dr drawn first. 
So that's the very first fight on this bracket. I was fighting this Russian exchange student. I remember a high school senior, right? <laughs> we met we'll call this a kumite. Yeah, <laughs> there was like 200 kids in the park. I don't know how the hell the cops didn't show up. No but anyway, doubt. So I'm fighting this tall Russian uh, exchange student. And the very first punch, I fake a level change. Everybody knew I wrestled. And he was actually a boxer. Uh, um, and uh, I faked the level change. He dropped his hand. And I just crushed his nose. This place fracture. You know, nose over the side of his face. He falls on the ground. And I hit him with, like, a few knees to the head. And it was done, like, in 20 seconds. Well, he didn't come to school for, like, almost a week. And when he came back, he had sunglasses on. His eyes were all blown up. And everybody pulled out of the tournament, right? Everybody's like, Winner. no, everybody got refunded. So I, I like, I had the one fight and they gave everybody their money back. But I would say that even like the pre uh, recorded record of my experiences, that was like my, and, and I, it was, it was an experience. Uh, um, so that, that was my senior year of high school. And, and I fell in love wow. with the sport, man. I really did. Um, so I was kind of dabbling. I, I moved to Louisiana because that's where I was stationed down here. And I was dabbling with some jiu-jitsu programs. Most of the jiu-jitsu schools hated me here because I had a wrestling background. So I was like the guy that came in and just kind of got on top of you and just held you. You know what I'm saying? So I was, I, they really didn't like me to come to their schools and stuff like that. So I was training at a small little kind of hybrid martial arts school, I guess you could say. And um, there was a, there was a big event that happened. Uh, uh, um, a guy named Jamie Levine, right? Oh. <laughs> Miguel's favorite yeah. promoter. Yeah, that, that's what I was gonna say. Him and Miguel are, are, are were buddies, I think. Right? Is that true, Miguel? Something like that. Uh, you know, we, we work together. You guys dated women around the same age. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> So we'll, we'll skip it. We'll, we'll talk privately offline on that. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. We yeah. can hear it all out here. <laughs> yeah. okay. But um, so 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 uh, uh, Steve Judson, remember remember him? He got knocked out in one of the US. It's like they by Brad Kohler. Yeah, the beginning promo Horribly. for like ten years. It was just a beautiful knockout. Well, anyway, he was he was scheduled on the main card at the Stomp in the Swamp here in Louisiana. And it was uh, um, the, uh, the the main event was uh, Conan Severa versus Maury Smith, right? And, um, I was like three fights or four fights in front of that. And I was fighting a guy that was like 15 and one. I never even knew what martial arts really was. So I, I, I fought a heavyweight at the time. And, How much did you uh, weigh? Uh, what, uh, at 227. <laughs> okay, wow. Okay, so let, let me kind of paint this picture a little. Uh, so on October 9, 1999, WEF7, Rich gets scheduled to fight Chris Seifert on a last-minute deal. Am I correct? They were already down here. They are like, shit, is there any tough guys here? And my name was, like, ringing around. There's was like, yeah, there's this wrestler from New Jersey. He's kind of tough and has an attitude. So they asked me, and I'm like, sure, I'll do it. I don't care, you know. So, so Seifert, Seifert at the time was 14-2-1. You were 0 and 0 and you say 226, but they listed you on the event at 208 pounds. Yeah. Maybe I was. I don't know. I thought I was a little heavier than that. In Seifert was 215. Okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. So but that's, that's, that's a lot of experience. Yeah. Yeah. And so so up in the Swamp is a little bit of a legendary show. 20-something fights, too. That yeah. Day. And there so, were some guys wow. on that. Carl Schmidt was an up and coming guy that was down from Louise. I mean, Steve, they, especially the Florida scene. So the, 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 the Florida at the time, 
and, and Miguel will, will, will validate this, probably had some of the best up-and-coming guys in the country, to be honest. Besides Monty's guys, I, I think that that crew of guys that kind of followed Jamie around and that he tried to – uh, um, you know, build up. And uh, I mean, th- there was really some good guys out of that area. Dean Thomas, Dean Thomas, Paul Rodriguez. Yeah. That was, that was his frontline guys. For a so long Rich, time. you were listed as a Shin Jitsu guy. <laughs> Did you make that yeah. up? What, what is that? I was definitely not that. That that was that kind of so. Uh, that was that little martial arts school that I told you that I like went to because they, there was the only place around that had mats, basically. You know, <laughs> was it like Shin, like your Shin, or was it just like C H I N? No, it was S H I N. So, and, and the instructor was like a black belt in Taekwondo years ago with some, you know, just not, not really much grappling experience at all. So I, I think I brought some value to his program with my wrestling background. Um, but, but again, it was more, I was in, I was in the military at the time. So it was like something kind of positive to do with my time, um, you know, while I was still in and stuff like that. So, so two, um, two, two weeks prior to this bout, you guys actually had a grappling, uh, a, a, you were in a grappling, like super fight, I guess, with him. And you lost by rear naked choke. Correct. Okay. Did that come into play with you? It's your first fight. Jitters. You've already oh, seen I, the guy I in the jitters. bed. I, I never had jitters when I fought. <laughs> uh, um, no, it was. I just don't like losing. So I was kind of pissed off, and I was like, "Fuck this jujitsu guy." I'm like, "Oh, he, he might have beat me with jujitsu, but I'll go in there and punch him in the face, and it'll be different." You know. That was. I mean, I. I didn't know anything really about the sport. You know, it's just, I was a tough guy and I was pissed off that I lost at something that I'm not used to losing at, you know? That's good. How was it dealing with Jamie Levine? Oh, that dude, he was such a snake, man. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. So, really? So I fought, a, um, and I'll use his proper name, Crazy Horse. Um, and, and that was when he was kind of at the top of his career. We fought in the legal barn in Florida at the time because they didn't allow MMA in the barn. And uh, I mean, it, they didn't allow MMA in Florida. They allowed it at the barn in that night for sure. And uh, um, literally, like, I had this dude in the mounted triangle. There was no rules whatsoever. Mounted triangle. I'm 12 sixing him elbows to the face, right? In a mounted triangle. And Jamie's like yelling cage side because he was, that was the next guy he was trying to promote. He's yelling at the ref who I think might have been Rodriguez or, or someone like that. You better not stop it. He's fine. Let it keep going. <laughs> And I mean, I must have spiked him like 20 times to the face, you know, yes. but uh, just, I mean, I mean, anything that guy said, you just couldn't trust nothing. So, so back to that first fight, how'd that go? You're finding the guy who's 14 and two, you've never had a fight. Oh, it's such an ugly fight. Unfortunately, it's online. Uh, um, it was just horrible. <laughs> uh, um, it was, it was embarrassing. I was embarrassed at myself. Um, but, but, you know, just like any person that has a lot of drive, watching that really pissed me off it's not like who i wanted to personally be you know and uh, um fast forward through that you know even after that fight i was really set on like being better well unfortunately i was matched up with really tough guys with lots of experience like most of the time purple belts and up you know and, and you know how it is when you're going when you're doing jiu-jitsu even if you have you know a, a little bit of experience against someone who has no jiu-jitsu experience you're going to prevail almost every time. And uh, um, when it's I, not when that I first, bad. Yeah. Rich, it's not that bad. You, you got, you got pinned. Like you, you it was three, two minutes. 
you, no, you got pinned. I'm not. I'm not just it's saying not that. that but even, even moving forward, I was three and six. That was like my record. Like we're, in the but, we're getting there. Hold on, but but I'm just just to defend what what you're saying there, man. I mean, there's been a lot of guys we've had on here, Nick Thompson, all these guys. Like, how long do you train? I trained for two weeks, and they came out like like everybody starts off with an upside down record because they're just fighting guys with experience. That's how it was back in the day. That's why all the guys, like I said, you're the guy who you made it. There were like thirty some fights. We all had it back then because you had to fight all the time, and just anybody that was there it wasn't the same as now. Uh, no. Listen. So listen to this. He says he says he went three and six, right? So, but listen to these guys. You're already talking about Chris Seifert, experience uh, advantage, Ben Yearwood, Rick McCoy, Steve Berger. Uh, later on, Pete Spratt. Real short after that. No, Damn. I understand that, but as we get to him, it's a murderer's row, though. It is. Oh, yeah, sure. Even Artie Brito is tough. And, and yeah. especially, especially Ben Earwood, man. Like that's that's the funny story right there. I remember, so I got called up. I was like all excited because I'm like, yeah, people know who I am. I'm getting Still. called up to, to getting called up to travel and fight now. That's like the next level for a local guy, you know. And oh, yeah. uh, um, I'm going to someplace Davenport, Iowa. Like you know, <laughs> fuck those farm fed guys up there. And uh, you know, I remember I was like close to the last fight. This Ben Earwood guy. Supposedly, he was like this other guy, Matt Hughes's protege, you know, whoever the fuck yeah. that guy was. And uh, um, I remember like literally every guy that fought before me because Monty didn't have like close fights where it was like 60 40 splits, they were like 80 splits. Yeah. <laughs> And every almost every guy on that fight card before my fight came in in a stretcher, like every single one of them, and and that pissed me off so bad. And I'll tell you, out of a fifteen minute fight, I spent like twelve minutes on my back straight to the point where Ben was even like fucking tap or tap out already, you motherfucker. Like he was telling me that. Uh, Chris fought him in the UFC. It was Chris's yeah, same first thing. UFC fight. He held me down for ten minutes. It was boring. Yeah. yeah, he was uh, he was uh, actually a better ref than a, than I mean he was a good fighter, but a little like he was a ref too, like more more on the circuit. But let's let Mike take back over because I think we skipped a couple of fights. Yeah, we skipped everything. So yeah, yeah. Go, ahead, Mike, go ahead, Mike. Get this, get it, get it. Come on, you know how sensitive I am. I mean, come on. I know. Sir. Come on. Let's be honest. <laughs> All right. So your second fight, I I have to assume you're a monster ticket seller. I have to. Like, even for your first fight. Because on your second fight for reality combat fighting, you're the main event and you're, you're fighting Rick Thompson. Yeah. Okay. H- how does an 0 and 1 guy end up main eventing on a card? It, it, was, it was probably, to be honest, it was more my attitude, to be honest. I didn't give a shit. <laughs> I wasn't scared. You know what I'm saying? And I think that alone. So, like, I, I just went out there and I was excited. You know, I tried to, like, Smush guys' heads against the face and, and, and cage and like scrape it down the side, you know, as I'm punching him. Like, that's the type of fighter I, I like to be. And I, I kind so, of wish that I would have kept a little bit more of that. Uh, uh, my career, <laughs> to be honest, now I look back. <laughs> so, Miguel, as a matchmaker, do you think Rich was the guy that was overselling himself and because of that was getting much harder fights than he should have been at that time? I mean, you're looking at his record. It's nuts. Well, you know, I think Chris has talked about it. I think guys, once they reach a certain level or are destined to reach a certain level, they have certain 
makeup. And I think that, yeah. like he said, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't, was, it doesn't sit well with him that he's not doing well. And yeah, I think he's probably very confident that he's like, I'll win the next one. I'll win the next one, which is, yeah. that was a great guy natural. to bring it. If you had a guy you were building, right. That was kind of right at the cusp. I was a great guy to bring in because I'm that guy's not going to, you're not going to beat me in five seconds. You know, I'm not going to tap out quick. So that your, your guy who you're building probably could actually get some really good work in. It's going to be an entertainment fight and you know, it, it's, it's going to be a struggle. Um, but at the end of the day, if your top performer um, is doing what he's doing nine times out of 10 at that time in my career, he probably should beat me, you know? So, so that's probably at the time and not knowing business really at the time, I really didn't look at it that way. You know, I was just looking to fight. That's what I like to do. I don't think um, anybody was, I don't think anybody really was. Well, you, you weren't making money back then. There was no bit like there was no huge payday at the end of the day. It's like a few people in the world made good money. It's like, yeah, this is fun. This is what I like to do. So I'm going to do it. Yeah, and that, at the time, I probably did it for ring girl phone numbers, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Good well, payday. Chris, he also fights right after that in a four-man tournament for reality combat. So, I mean, you're, you're base, you've got a home base, which is important to have when you're building yourself up. And in the first round, you fight Scott Malia, who um, I think I found a little snippet of it. You knocked him out pretty quick. And Malia never fights again. Like he, he had enough. Whatever he experienced with Rich, he yeah, certainly he scratched officer, that itch. Yeah. And that was it. <laughs> and then you fight Warren Donnelly, or Warren Donnelly beats Aristides Brito. Donnelly's 12 and 3, but he can't continue. So they throw Brito in with yourself. So yeah. now you're going, you get your first win. And now you're heading into the finals of a four-man tournament. Was there adrenaline yeah. issues or, or anything so, of that so nature? There, there's actually a, a great backstory there. So uh, um, Warren Donnelly wasn't hurt at all, actually. He was warming up right next to me. And all I was having my training partner do, because he, he was a wrestler. He's a very well-known wrestler, wrestling coach at one of the big high schools over here. And um, I just had my training partner shoot in and all I was working was jump knees on my training partner. Right. And I'm looking at it. And I'm, I, I made this dude so nervous. He actually just pulled out of the fight. And nice. this is a guy that was pretty experienced. Right. Uh, um, but, but fast forward, you'll see that me and him fight. So I don't know. I'm trying to be nice. You guys told me not to get out of order. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> No, okay. we have to not get out of yeah. order. You know, we're so, trying to so, reel you in. Go ahead. No, so anything like, we could do to drive Mike crazy is okay. Anything. That's true. So two years, Very two good years later, I fought on Dan Severn, headlined a card down here, and uh, uh, me and me and him fought. And uh, it was probably one of my most brutal knockouts ever. Good enough. His back foot, I was backing him up, kind of stalking him down. It was close first round. Uh, um, he was a little gassed going in the second. I'm backing him up. I'm stalking him. His back foot touches the cage, and I see his eyes get big. Well, I know he's just, it's so embedded in him to do it. He shoots. I sidestep him, hit with a jump niche into the face. Boom. You know, oh. completely knocked out. Hyperventilated. For, it was kind of scary, actually. Hyperventilated probably for almost like 10 minutes, man. I mean, he was he was out cold. Um, I checked on him afterwards, right? And uh, I came up to him like, man, Warren, I'm sorry. He's a really great guy, to be honest. And what's funny, though, he said, he goes, Rich, he goes, I really don't even give a shit what happened to me in this match. He goes, for two years, he goes, you haunted me because you owned me as a man. Because when I didn't fight you that day, 
it, it, it bothered my confidence. It, it, it like haunted me. And I was afraid I was going to have to live with that for the rest of my life. So it was I, almost like that. I, I relieved him of that, you know, that, that day. So it was, it was kind of cool, but, uh, you're, um, you're a giver. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, that's understandable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I respect it though. I mean, he was honest about it and he faced his fear. hundred percent. Right. More okay. Than okay. Do, to be honest. Yeah, 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 and and Artie Brito went zero and two that day, but still a tough guy, and yeah, still he's a guy who he's fought for you many a times, has he not? I I don't think he get, I, I he was definitely like shoot. a guy I was aware of, but no, I don't think I ever signed him. I, I thought he I was a hook and shoot. I don't think he's so. an extreme challenge guy. I know he was extreme challenge. I figured he bounced. No, what did he you, was from the south, but what did you yeah. win for that tournament? Oh shit! <laughs> two two ring card, your phone oh, number. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I actually did, but uh, um, I, I don't know if it was a, a a title belt or a ringside belt, but it was something similar in nature. No money. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean there was yeah. I mean right away I fought pro uh, right out the gun. So I mean who knows? Few hundred bucks at the time. I thought I don't remember. <laughs> not, not enough to remember. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I really can't. Now that I look back on it, I don't really remember any real paydays that I could super remember, to be honest. I mean, there might have been a few in there, but for the most part, uh, um, you know, I mean, I did it because I like doing it. It was an expression of who I was really at the time. Well, so you're two and two at this point. And then you fight in the World Valley Judo Federation against uh, Demetrius Wilson. <laughs> okay. Is this like no rules? Because I saw some headbutts in this fight. Yeah, so uh, um, I, I really don't recall, to be honest, but I knocked him out with a brachial stun karate chop from guard on bottom, right? Pushed his head to the side, gave him like a shot. Right? And, <laughs> and the, dude, the dude was out cold on top of me. And the crazy thing is, is like it looked like he was just laying on me, not doing anything. And I'm telling the ref, I'm like, he's he's unconscious, man. I knocked him out, you know. And it was such a short little chop, like just all my body there into it. And uh, um, when I stood up, like the crowd was booing because like they didn't know what happened. They just thought he gave up. And but I I thought that was like the most badass thing. I'm like, I yeah. knocked out this guy with a karate chop to the neck Some from, guys, you know? from the bottom, <laughs> from the bottom, yeah. <laughs> It's all the uh, all those board breaking techniques you were yeah, doing over at Shin Jitsu. It really paid 100%. off. Hundred <laughs> percent. So that was with headbutts. There was no rules, um, which is that kind of speaks of what type of competitor you are. To be honest with you, like you're you're three and two, and you're entering into areas and waters that are pretty deep, and most people are afraid to kind of stick your toe in. And then on August twenty sixth, uh, you know, two thousand. Your relationship at this point, I believe, starts to begin with Monty Cox, because I know he later on managed you. Um, that's where you fought Ben Earwood. Yeah, because uh, he, he uh, um, and it was funny afterwards, he came up to me and, and I love Monty. I mean, I, I would honestly, my father died when I was young. And, and I'll be honest, I mean, if I would say that anyone was like a true mentor to me and a father figure, I, I have a few people too but just absolutely amazing human being. Well, you know, me and that guy never even had an official contract. I've paid him thousands and thousands of dollars over the years. You know, it was off a handshake, you know, and, and I like that because it, it's reciprocating on both ends. I, I, I believe if you had money on the line, he would probably tell you the same stuff about me. 
But um, yeah, he came up to me that I was fucking all lumped up and shit. And uh, you know, he came up to me. He's like, "Man, you're a pretty tough, dude." You know. <laughs> He's like, let me get your number. I want to bring your ass up here and get it beat again, you know? But definitely, I want you on board, you know? I'll show other studs to throw your way. Earwood beats Rich, as we had discussed already. And his very next fight's UFC 28 against Chris. So it was your one common opponent. One of your common opponents, I should say. Um, From there, you fight Rick McCoy in Danger Zone. How was... We love... Not only do we love Danger Zone, Dan Severn... <laughs> probably in our number two well, favorite, lot, right, Chris? I mean, was didn't you guys? What's that? Didn't you fight for them quite a bit? If I if I remember, I never fought for Danger Zone. Oh, really? I thought you did, man. Uh-uh. No, okay. I was Severn as a promoter. You know, it wasn't Severn at the time. It was Becky Levi, actually. It was it was Becky? Becky did all the work. He was just kind of the front guy and the big smile and the handshake and warm fuzzy personality. But but Becky was the bulldog behind all that. Did did you pay for the videotape of your fight? I actually did have to. Uh, it's funny that you say that. And mm-hmm. I re- I remember uh, um, I remember fighting on the card and this dude came out with a uh, uh, with this Walmart like chain around his neck and I was like, look at this clown. It was Quentin Jackson. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> knew who he was at the time. You know, uh, um, but, but that was his start as well, too, if I'm not mistaken. It was in the yeah. kind of danger zone promotion. He was actually living out of a van at the time. So he pulled uh. up in this house van and uh, brought his, his his garden chain out, you know, and uh, um, he was pretty entertaining that night as well, too. So that was kind of fun. He he was he started the van life thing. I thought it was a new thing, but no, he, he, he was an originator, it sounds like. Hundred percent, bad life. Uh, yeah, uh, Rick, that Rick McCoy guy is tough, and you, you actually that show was in Virginia, and you're in his hometown there. I so thought they, they I thought I should have. I I felt I should have won that decision to be honest, but you know how it is. We go in someone's backyard. I mean, it was a great fight. I'm not taking anything away from him to be honest, but but it was a really grinding fight uh, on both ends. Um, but it was cool because I think that I was starting to, at that point, start to establish a little bit of a reputation for myself, you know, other than just being a tough guy to be brought in. Like I was actually starting to accumulate some skills at this time and stuff like that. You know, so, Rich, especially back then, though, I mean, it, it's a little different when you had a, a you were in somebody's hometown. It wasn't like you had these judges that were like the state certified judges you had the promoters buddies who were judges let's be honest the guys training partners that's all it was your training partners that guy's training partners were the judges how was any of this legal i don't know but you know back before they had like real judges all those things that have asterisks by but there's a lot of fights where you lose and split decisions like yeah i mean people boo it's like that mean anything you still got the loss but i know what you mean it's not it's not that it was how is this legal? It's just that it wasn't illegal. That's all. <laughs> so, which then Miguel, makes it legal? <laughs> Miguel, can we talk about the main event of that card? And if Richard yeah. is so, Miguel, why don't you mention the main event? We, I, we see each other looking at each other. The, Go main, ahead. the main, the main event is Severn Fulton one. It's a classic. <laughs> uh, you know, we we got a classic on here. That, that actually was. If you asked, if you'd asked me the main event, I would not have recalled it. As soon as you said that. That was probably go down as one of the best fights I've ever seen, actually. It was amazing. Please explain. Yes. No, it, it just, it just, because you expected Fulton to get his ass kicked. And if I'm remembering correctly, like he rocked the shit out of Dan quite a few times, if I recall. I mean, I'll have to. How did it end? 
wasn't it a decision? I don't know. I, he, I don't they recall. fell out of the ring and Dan ran back in and beat the 10 count. Stop you know, it. Me? Please yeah, stop. Yeah. yeah, you're you've you've got uh you know a live recollection, but like the stuff that's come out about that fight afterwards is a little different. I, I, I you gotta you, watch it. A touch of trivia when I, I got to match make Matt Hume's last fight, and I uh he fought Shane uh uh, Payne Peters, the Canadian fight, but yeah. Rick, McCoy, Rick McCoy was the number two guy. He he, I, he heavily negotiated for that fight, and that was close to happening. And I think McCoy would have been a more dangerous opponent, but Payne Peters was a bigger name. So yeah, just no, a little he, trivia. I, I believe he does a lot of stuff for the boxing commission in Virginia now. I believe he's like yeah. their head guy and stuff. Uh, yeah, um, he's, nice. a, he's a he's a lifer in his business. Rick McCoy deserves yeah. more credit than he gets. I think. I agree. I agree. So Severn versus Fulton, classic, legendary work. They did a fantastic job, fooled a lot of people. And from there, you go. I, like, so you said, I must, I must, I need to go back and watch it then because I remember as a fan being there. Rich, and I, Rich, I just was, gave you a way out. I just gave you a way out. Just go, yeah, you're right. Yeah, fooled a lot of people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and check it. <laughs> okay. So I have been punched in the head a few times, just for the record. It's true. It's I can true. use that as a disclaimer. It's true. <laughs> So from there, that legendary main event, dude, you fight, uh, you fight Steve Berger, um, November 25th, 2000. And although, I mean, it's, it's, it ends in the first round. When you look at the totality of your record and his record, like as a promoter, I see a fight like that and somebody has it on the indie grind. I'm incredibly jealous that they had that fight because it's two first-class competitors. Why don't you let walk us through Steve Berger? Yeah, I really don't recall too much of it. I just remember making a really critical mistake. And, and it, you know, the, the guys now, and I tell my sons this all the time. So my, my sons are, are top tier wrestlers, youth wrestlers. And I, I try to tell them, I'm like, you guys have like the golden ticket, man. You got, you could sit there all day and watch all this cool shit, almost to the point where it's overwhelming on the internet. What to do when this you know, how to counter this, all these things. Yeah, you know how I learned how to counter shit? It's because someone did it to me and I have a big L by my name. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I said, I'm never going to do that again. You know? Yep. <laughs> so, but uh, um, but yeah, I just remember kind of making a critical mistake and him catching a submission on it. We still actually, he has exactly opposite political views than I do, uh, uh, but we, we chat a lot on Facebook. Usually it's little showing, uh, uh, throwing shots across the bowels at each other. <laughs> but in a friendly way. He, he, he's a great dad, you know, he, a uh, uh, hard worker. Uh, I, and those are the two most important things to me in life and the relationships that I'm around. So regardless if I disagree with every one of his political views, he's a great guy. Because he's wrong. You disagree with him because he's wrong. wrong. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why else would I say that? <laughs> so Miguel, who was the main event on that card? Oh, that, that one was insane in Fort Wayne. And this is also Dan Severn taking on Aaron Keeney. So we uh, just had the we just had the danger zone uh, main matchmaker and promoter. And he said, Oh yeah, no, no. I, not only did I match make, promote, and do everything, I was also the referee. That fight was also a work. He just disclosed that to us uh, a few days ago, actually, in an interview. Didn't know that. Yeah, it's I don't recall that fight. I remember just being pissed off because I, I, I actually, it was weird, man. If I won, right, 
and it was like a nasty drag out fight. I, I mean, I felt so full of life and energy, but if I had a really quick win, I was almost like somewhat depressed. And when I lost, it was the same way. If I would lose and just fucking just where I had a lot of respect for a guy, I was like, damn, man, that, that dude's tough. I would go out feeling fulfilled. But if I ever, if I had a match where I got injured or something like that, or it was just, I got snagged in something early, like that was like the most oppressive thing for me for whatever reason. I, I don't know how it was for you, Chris, but um, I really struggled with whether I won or lost. But if, if it was quicker in nature, it, it really just didn't sit well with me either way. Yeah, I mean, to me, just the way you fight means a lot. I, I've, I've lost, like, several split decisions. And, I, I, I mean, they're very painful. But looking back later on, it's like, you know what? I went out there and did what I could. And, and, and if it's a good fight, you know, that's kind of why you really fight to begin with. It wasn't for wins or losses or money. It's because you want to go out there and fight. And if you did what you could, you had somewhat of a good feeling about it. You know what I mean? So yeah. that, was always, that yeah. was always a good thing. You know what I mean? But my wins, what's weird is my, my wins were sometimes somewhat depressing for the same reason. You know, it was just like, I felt like I put so much in and I never got to release that, you know, like yeah. the release of all that, uh, um, that work and the, the effort and the anger that, that came along with that. Um, if I didn't get that out, it, it was problematic for the most part. Well, and, and I've told people, I, I definitely rather, like, I love those fights. I go out and I win in 30 seconds, but there's something way more meaningful than a fight where I got knocked down, had to come back in the second, third round and, and grind it out and, and win. It. I mean, those mean something more. It's like, I, I tested myself and I passed, you know, it's not, I, anyway, yeah, I can knock somebody out 30 seconds. Yeah. So those mean way more to me. 100%. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's just a competitor in you. I mean, that's, what it comes down to, like you need to scratch that itch, you know. It's yeah. <laughs> uh, that's what built the sport too, though. You know, like yeah, we've we've heard a consistent message from guys of that generation of, of that that you know it wasn't the money; it was a lot of you know internal stuff. Prove prove to myself, exactly. and, and and then also you we've heard a lot of them criticize the newer generation. Like even Rich mentioned. Being, you know, you know, being able to scout the way we they can scout now is such an advantage, such a difference. So, yeah. like, yeah, they are pampered. So it's like, yeah, you, they, they just guys come from a weird cloth or a different cloth that think that way. But that, that's what it is. A lot of the guys there, the top guys, a consistent message. Yeah, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure Chris feels the same way. You know, it's kind of like like a badge that you wear because of that. Uh, uh, it's a little, a little different now, I feel, you know. Um, but, um, it, it, I'll, I'll tell you those, those experiences and stuff, you know, it truly, truly defines who, who I am today. I mean, I have to, to really, uh, pay it all almost on, on through that experience and stuff, you know, uh, I'm really defining a lot of my thought process and, and, and just who I am in general. So I'm appreciative of it. Well, Rich, I look at like, you know, some of my, 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 my biggest losses and I, I feel like that helped define me as a person in a way and sometimes it destroys people but like to me I was like it made me I don't know if I'd be where I am now if it weren't for that like I know no matter what you do to me I'm going to be successful I'm just going to make it happen no matter what what I didn't know that before you know I if it's too easy for you just if you're successful all the time I never had that problem you know I had some some hurdles to go through but now I'm just like I feel like I can do anything because of it and I think you're the same way look at where you're at right now it's because of all the trials and tribulations you went through it made you in the person you are and you're killed now because of that not in spite of that in many ways so 
it's a good thing to have some adversity. It's how you deal with it. You've dealt with it properly, and some people never can deal with that. Yeah, I know. I, I agree 100%. So when you first met Jamie Levine, you took a last-minute fight at around 210 pounds. Um, so now he's trying to push Charles Crazy Horse Bennett, and Charles is every bit of like 150 pounds, but he feels comfortable putting him in with you December 16th, 2000 at what – is tantamount to what you had said appears to be like some sort of illegal fight in Florida. Yeah, it was, you couldn't, you couldn't have MMA fights over there. It was, it was still, uh, um, it was not legal. What was the weight difference between you two? I, I don't recall. You probably have that information. Uh, um, I, 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 I don't, uh, um, I don't think it was too far off though, to be honest. I, I was already fighting at, uh, um, I would like to say I was floating around 160 most of the time. You know, I really, wow. wish, I, I really wish they would have brought that weight class. And I would say that that was probably the toughest thing for me with the sport and, and still probably for some guys, 170, the height advantage, you know, when you talk about MMA leverage is extremely important. Um, so 170, you know, I was fighting the guys like Ron Canero and Anthony Johnson who are just super, super tall, and that leverage and reach makes just such a difference. But 155 is such a cut. It's, it's such a huge different weight. I really, really would have benefited from like a, a 160. That's that's really where I needed to be. I, I struggled bad getting that down to 55. And again, I was giving up too much of a deficit most of the time at 170. I mean, th- I mean, the, the, the 170 to one, that's 15 pounds, man. Why, they needed like a 162 and a half really split the distance or something. Yeah, I mean, I've always just, thought 15 that. pounds yeah. is too much, man. Sorry. Yeah. Well, 70 to 85. Same thing. I, I 85 agree. to 205. Yeah. It's just nuts. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. So, yeah. so, Rich, you're fighting like every three weeks at this point, like three to four weeks. You've got about a lot of times, like Chris has mentioned, it's different when you're training for a fight and training to learn. Did you have that issue at this point in your career? Um, no, not really. So, and that was one thing that was nice as, uh, um, I mean, we're still a little ahead of, but specifically when it rolled in, uh, you know, becoming part of uh, Team Extreme with Monty Cox and, and helping Jens out with some of his fights, um, there was no real training to learn ever at that place. Like he's sparred <laughs> every day. You know, and and my program, I developed a program here in the South once I started fighting. And I was I was kind of the main guy that was really starting to put some fuel on the sport here in the area. I started doing small uh, promotions to try to uh, um, try to uh, uh, see and, and gather some talent, you know, kind of start creating my own team here. Um, so we just fought all the time. You know, I mean, every Sunday someone they, they actually knew us at the er over there because most generally we'd send somebody we'd just take like a, a roll of toilet paper and stick it to the guy's laceration on his head and we tape it a few times and draw a smiley face and put the time on it and send them send them over to the hospital yeah. so um but that's just and now you don't see guys like training like that anymore and it's probably for the better to be honest because when you look at my fights i mean I got a shitload of fights, but I fought every week. So regardless, you say every three weeks or four weeks, I sparred a hundred percent at least two or three times a week, which I look back on now. And it's, it's, uh, that's definitely where I deal with some of my health issues. Luckily I have decent head movements, so I've never been knocked out, but, um, you know, some of the guys that I trained with, 
actually struggle. I don't want to go into the personal information on some of them, but they struggle because of that time fear. And, and I, I feel somewhat guilty because of that. But, um, you know, that's all I knew at the time, you know, and, and a lot of guys, you know, you've seen the success that the Militich has had and stuff like that. So you thought that that was the way. So that's what you em emulated. Well, Rich, you know, and I talk about that a lot, too. I mean, th th there's definitely some pros to that. You know, you develop a certain kind of mental toughness and, and you know, you know how to take a punch on that. But I mean, people don't train like that anymore for a reason, you know. And, and but we didn't know we were the blind lead and the blind back. That you just did what you thought was best. And you did have a certain level of toughness that people don't have now. Um, but there's a long term consequence to pay for it, you know. So I, I wish I had done stuff different, too. But it, I didn't know any better back then. And just go hard as you can. Remember that, Chris? There was a time period that, like, if you tapped out in the UFC, you were cut. Like, you were <laughs> you, you weren't fighting. If you tapped out, like, especially from punches, that was like oh. you you were you were a big pussy, and you don't need to fight at the time. That if you tapped out from strikes, you, you know, you weren't being put on a big card. That that was roll, the tone at the time. Roll over and give up the choke. That, yeah, go out with honor. You know what I mean? That's the only way it was. You're right. Yeah. That's wild. That's wild. So January 27th, like I said, you're, you're kind of on three week, three, three and a half, four week increments here at this point. Um, this one, obviously a little bit more um, reality combat fighting nine at 170 pounds, your hometown, you fight Pete Spratt. How, how does that fight get put together? Um, no, I was, uh, um, it was at the point where I was starting to really get some traction. You know, I was, I was going to people's gyms. I was wrecking shop. Nobody locally wanted to fight me. Um, so, you know, that's all they could do is bring in kind of tougher guys, you know? Um, and uh, uh, Pete, Pete cheated his ass off in that fight. I mean, me and Pete are good friends, but uh, um, <laughs> half, the picture, half the pictures you see, he's hanging like over the top of the fence and shit like that, like holding on, like reaching over the top with like fingers holding on. And at the time, like, you know, that it wasn't really enforced like it is now, you know? So he stopped like four or five takedowns on me. Um, and then it, I, I wore down a little bit and then he, uh, uh, he hit me with a super solid punch at a, a crack my orbital actually. Um, oh. so then it, it was short lived after that. If, if you've never had a cracked orbital, it's probably one of the more painful injuries that you could get. Hmm. All right. Okay. So Chris, you, you tend to kind of concentrate on the mental aspects where people were, <laughs> at in their careers. Rich, at this point, you're one in three in your last four fights and you got your cracked orbital in front of your hometown. Where are you at mentally at this point? I, stupid or what? I don't know, but I, I mean, I, I was actually extremely motivated for whatever reason. <laughs> I, I really, I, I liked, uh, you know, it's funny because my oldest son, my oldest son's like a, a playboy, man. He, uh, um, he's a super smooth wrestler. He's yoked up. He's got a great look about him. And it's funny because when he turned 13, I took him on like this dad walk where I wanted him to see some of the hardships I had in my life that helped define me. So we went to this place I grew up at, it was super, super challenging area. And I just, it was a low part of my life for sure another thing that helped define me, but it was funny because we were walking and I asked him, I'm like, you know, what, what's my motivator? And he's like, dad, he goes, to be honest, he's like, I just think you hated everything in life. So you just wanted to change, wanted to have so much anger. You, you kind of took it out on everybody. And I asked him, I was like, well, what's yours? And he's like, 
I like being that guy. He's like, I like people to know my name. I like to stand on top of the pedestal. And that's his driver. And I think at the time, specifically because the sport was such a an oddity for the most part, like, you know, to, to travel and do these things and, and have that whole experience that so many people just thought it was like an amazing thing. And and, and it was so out the box for most 99.9% of the percentile that like that hooked me, man. You know, I, I liked the challenge of that. And I liked being one of a few that, that were willing to do it, man. That was like my driver at the time, to be honest. And then I had a personal drive. I don't like failing at shit, you know? So it was like, it bothered me on a deep level, like to, to, to where like, I was training by myself, waking up at five, hitting the bags by myself, running like I had. And that's one thing that's kind of neat about my career. I I had some some training partners that stuck with me the whole time. But if you look at the guys who were underneath me, for the most part, I didn't really have close guys that had reached the pinnacle that maybe I had. So most of my training partners were not on necessarily the, the talent level. Um, as most of the guys I was fighting and their training partners. So, um, you know, I had to put in a lot of personal work. That's wild. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, all right, you said there's a lot of anger and things. Like, you said a couple things, and I, I'm going to kind of, you know, go off the beaten path a little bit that we normally hit. Where do you think your anger comes from? You know where your anger comes from. What is it? We could use the word came from because I'm I'm a loving, caring guy now. So that that guy's kind of buried a little bit and only comes out when needed. That's what's that's what's nice about it. You know, I can I can get in any, any type of discussions now. And it's like at the end of the day, everyone know that guy's still in there, you know. But yeah. for the most part, I, I had a uh, um I had a super, super challenging uh um childhood, man. I mean, I, I was in 20-something schools growing up. Um, we were, we were super, super poor, you know, I mean, living in trailers with holes in them and stuff. Uh, um, I, I, my, my father died when I was young and my mom had some, some iffy relationships through that. And unfortunately I followed that around as it, it went necessarily, you know, and I, I, I was, I moved out when I was 16. Um, so a lot of challenges, you know, more so than most. So, so the fact that, you know, the family that I have today and, and, and all the things, and and I'm just so blessed, you know, uh, um, but, but again, all of those things angered me to the point where it was, it it pushed me and fed a fuel that, that constantly made me want to be uh, uh, somewhere else than I was. And I never felt like I had to be there. And that's like with today's, not to get off the path, cause I can fuck, I can talk about this forever, but, uh, um, you know, it, it's very difficult for me to look at, you know, excuses and what people say nowadays, how there's not opportunity and there's stuff because like, I mean, I'm prime example, man, that, that just, I don't let nothing define me, dude, you know? And, and if I, if there was a person that had excuses, I definitely could have been one of those people. You know, th- that's one thing that, oh, real quick, that's one thing that, like, when I'm giving speeches or giving advice to everybody I talk about, like, my biggest thing is the, the best thing ever happened to me is when I quit making excuses or listen to people make excuses for me because I'm like, no, no matter what excuses, any fight I lost, I promise it was my fault. I didn't do something right, I didn't train right, whatever. There's When you blame anybody for your stuff, you can't solve the problem. You know what I mean? So, it's all my problem. I, anything that goes wrong in my life, 
okay, maybe if a plane crashes on your house, but I mean, anything short of something like that, it's my fault. And once you accept these responsibilities, you can fix them. If you don't, if it's not your fault, you can't fix shit. So once you do that, like you're saying, you're going to be all right. Uh, but most people won't do that now. Everybody's got a built-in excuse. Oh, it's society's fault. It's their person's fault. You don't have the opportunity. Everybody has, I mean, it's so easy right now. It's the easiest time to live ever, but people have built-in excuses and they believe when people tell them it's not their fault. It's your fault, I promise. Well, and and what's, what's crazy, Chris, is that I had like, I had this moment in my life a few years back. I had a few really rough business things that happened to me where I had to scrap everything and rebuild right, right back up. And I mean, I'm talking like very, very successful things. Some deals fell apart and stuff like that. Multiple at the same time and, and really put everything I had at jeopardy, you know, but uh, um, with that being said, you know, what people don't understand is there's not really any bad and good things that happen in your life. Right. When you look at it as like, those back, the only reason things go different than you expect is I'm a true believer that that God wants you to experience those things. So you have you can take those tools. And there's certain things like in fighting is a prime example. There's certain things that you experience in that arena. Okay. And the, that that the normal person can't even come close to dealing with those challenges, you know. And that's why my boys just to harp on youth wrestling. That's why my my sons wrestle, man, because there is no other sport you could put a child in where they have that kind of adversity. It's very similar to a lot of the same things we deal with in fighting, but but have that type of adversity at a young age. And you should see, man, Chris, I, I really maybe next time we're at bare knuckle boxing or something, uh, I'll let you spend some time with a man. But those dudes aren't scared of shit. They, they stand there with tall chests, you know what I'm saying? And they don't care, man. You can tell them to get in there and announce the show and start, and they'll do it, man, you know? So, uh, um, you know, just I, I'm a big fan of trials and tribulations, man. I really am. And when you realize that and learn to embrace both the good and the bad, man, you, you level up in life, dude. You just level up. It's it just it, – when, when you change your perspective on all that – it's it's amazing, man. Very rarely will you see me get dented or off my path, dude. So, so, so Rich, so just one quick, one quick ad, Rich. Too is like, I don't think people give the fight, you know, because you mentioned it. In you, Chris, have mutual experiences of overcoming in the cage that make you absolutely unique, right? But on top of those experiences, there's also the fame, the recognition that there's. So it's almost like a twofold thing like an assault on your senses kind of thing that could you could 100%. be enamored with one or the other, but it almost makes it more difficult than just your average, than an actor or something like that or other, because there's two types of challenges that you face. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I agree. Totally. So Rich, you know, a lot of times, like at the end of our interviews, we talk about, you you had, you had mentioned like CTE, you know, I mean, not yourself, obviously, but people that you trained with a lot of the the abuse you took in the gym was actually a lot harder than what you sustained in, in a fight. Have you looked at strengthening your neuroplasticity through the use of psilocybin? No, uh, um, luckily, for the most part, like and I don't know if it was just I have a brick for a head or. Uh, um, you know, uh, I just really didn't take too many hard punches. You know, I wasn't necessarily the guy that just shouldn't, I wasn't necessarily fought like, like Spencer Fisher, you know, <laughs> but a guy just stand in the pocket and just, and I love him as a fighter. Don't get me wrong. I have a lot of respect for the guy. Um, yeah. but, um, 
most of most of what I deal with is, is spinal cord injury, to be honest. Um, okay, but but that also helps with like past trauma. Like if you watch Dean Lister on Real Sports on HBO, it, it showed that his past trauma was what was really bothering him on top of the blows to the head. And yeah. you know, him and Ian McCall, when they went through it, it felt like it was kind of they were able to live their life without having to carry that the, you know that weight anymore. Yeah. Are you open to it just out of curiosity? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm open to anything, to be honest. I, I'm, 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 you have to remember that what I do in medical sales, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, um, I, I bring new technologies, you know, it's, it's what I do by nature. So by no means am I not open to, to listening to conversations and, and things like that about that, you know, um, but it, it's kind of weird at the same token. I also have, uh, uh, I've come to some acceptance, you know, people make fun of me all the time. I'm, I'm a little heavier than I used to be, you know, I, I don't roll or train anymore, but, uh, you know, I, I tell everybody, man, I'm like, first of all, if I was to do that right now, it would have nothing to do, but be selfish because I know that I only have like my back's in really bad position uh, situation right now. And I probably would benefit from surgery. So I have a few more miles left before I got to bridge that gap, you know, and I save them for my sons, man. You know what I'm saying? Like if it's not doing something with my kids and, and you know, for me to get out there and, and don't get me wrong, I, you know, they chatter at the gym, come on, what you just, and I'm like, man, I just, I, I'm used up, you know, and, and I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, I really am. Like I have a certain level of acceptance and you see guys who, and when we talk about the guys who kind of our generation, Chris, you see a lot of guys that struggle with that. And, and so many guys try to just keep that, that same pace, you know? And, and then I look back and I'm like, I, I ask myself when I, when I see him, I watch a lot of guys, have a lot of friends on, on social media and stuff, but like, what is the why on that? You know, like you're sacrificing time with your children or leveling up in your businesses and stuff. Because why? Because, you know, it, it helps your ego to, to remind you that that's who you were or, or try, you're not you're not that guy anymore. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And you have to be okay with that to some extent. Yeah. Acceptance and being realistic is important. You know what I mean? I mean, it's not a sign of weakness that you can't do things. That, I remember I was at the gym a while ago and this kid, he's like 23. You know, when you're laying on your back and all of a sudden you like karate jump up and like right off your back, he did that. And I was like, dude, I, I ain't done that in like 30 years. <laughs> it's like, I'm not, I, why would you do that right now? Like I have, it struggles me to get up and you're like, yeah, just jump up. I'm like, dude, you're, you're just young. You know, I'm just like, I can't do that. And I don't want to. And I accept that. You know, it's like, just do what you can do. It, it, it's funny, man. You just see the different levels and people who have problem with that, man. You, that's a problem with you. You gotta, you gotta accept this stuff, man. Yeah. So you said you had broke your orbital in the Pete Spratt fight. Am I correct? Yes. Uh, so a month and a half later, he fights March 17th, 2001, <laughs> Donegal Submission Fighting Championships. Uh, <laughs> he's fighting a four-man tournament. No, wow. it, was actually, it was actually like, it was actually like I had nine bouts that day, actually. There was what? Half, I had nine. Half of them were submission, too. So some of them were open weight class submission only. So I did like four or five grappling matches, and then I did the tournament after that. Okay. There's a real weird thing going on. I, I looked through it, and I, I like to piece it together, kind of see if somebody went somewhere or fought somebody yeah. famous. And, you know, in the first round, you fight uh, – where is that? I think I just hit it. Yeah, I apologize. In the first round – Jeremy you, Jimenez? Yes, Jeremy Jimenez 
But then in a second round, you fight Edwin Elsites, and you, you won by Kamora, so you're, you're 2 and 0. But Edwin Elsites appears to fight three times, and it's a four man tournament. <laughs> Dude, I, I, you got me. And the thing was, is that Texas, they don't allow, they didn't allow face strikes at that time. Remember, there was years in Texas, they just let so you do like pancreas or some shit yep. like that. Open hand so, strikes. Yeah, uh-huh. so it wasn't like a, a regular MMA match uh, um, like that. Who was the promoter? Uh, uh, a guy, Zolfi Ahmed, who runs a big kind of traditional martial arts school. So the Dungle Tournament is actually an Indian-based uh, um, event that they do in India. Uh, I think India or Pakistan. No, I'm sorry, Pakistan. And uh, um, they have a big war club that the winner wins. Um, but you got to bring it back the next year, which kind of sucks. But it's this big, like, huge org that you can smash someone with. Uh, it was actually a pretty prestigious thing. Uh, um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, when you went over in Texas, and that's why a lot of the Texas guys came over to Louisiana, you couldn't do just 100% traditional uh, um, uh, mixed martial arts. Okay. Huh. So we're going to fast forward a few fights. And Lee Coates starts to kind of – you know, plant some seeds in the mixed martial arts world. I've got a lot of respect for the freestyle fighting championship. And they brought in a local Iowa guy, a Midwest guy, Joe Jordan, who had a real hot name at one point. Like he, I think he had like 30 wins in a row at one point. Nice. They bring him in. Yeah. Joe Jordan was a stud and they bring him in to fight you. And you, know, you make pretty quick work of him. Yeah, that was a great. That was a great fight for me. Uh, um, and, and hats off to Jim. Do you guys follow his son at all? Yeah, his son won a national championship in wrestling. Yeah. Really? He's still got, his, his son's actually one of the top wrestlers in the whole country right now. He's amazing. Who's he wrestle for? Uh, he's still in high school. He travels yeah, all around. He's like around. They, I think they homeschool and stuff like that. But uh, um, it, 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 a little bit, you know, Barrett, comes Barrett, to, Barrett Jordan, just Barrett, so yeah. Right. Uh -huh. so, so, if you hear his name, Barrett, yeah, he's he's phenomenal. So, what did, you know, like Joe, did you know Joe from the Iowa scene? Like, I do, did, so you went into his fight having scouted him because he was he was a known quantity from up there, a tough guy himself, too. Yeah, I think uh, uh, I think I ran into him at a whoop ass Wednesday. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, not whoop ass Wednesday, but that was my show. But uh, Tuesday, Monty did those Tuesday Monty's night fights up there, or something like that. Uh, um, I, I think I ran into him there. Uh, but but again, I felt like maybe at the time we were kind of had the same respect as far as level that we were kind of looked at, you know. So so to go in there and really dominate that fight like I did, I I, I dominated the whole thing. Um, you know, really kind of helped where where I was starting to to be where I wanted to be. How was it dealing with Lee Coates? Lee's a, Lee was a great guy, to be honest. Uh, uh, him and his partner, actually, Rob Braniff. I was closer friends with Rob Braniff. Uh, um, they were 50-50 partners at the, in the FFC. Uh, um, and uh, they did a good job, man. They brought in a lot of talent um, at the time, fights that um, – you know, were were UFC caliber fights they were they were putting on. To be honest, you could go through the list, and I mean, there was some really really entertaining top level bouts. But you, you know, know Rich, it's, it's it's funny back then. Like the UFC only put on like what five or six fights a year, so everybody had to fight outside the UFC. So there was like like you said, smaller promotions could have great fights because they had to fight there. Yeah, absolutely. 
So we, we sometimes take deep dives just with people that worked with promotions. So we've done, obviously, Monty. Uh, we just knocked out Danger Zone. I hope to sit down with Rob and Lee one day and just have them bring us through, um, you know, the FFC. Because that, that organization was absolutely special. They really did a great job. I agree. When you were up working out with Militich, was Lee Murray in the room at all with you? No. No, and I don't necessarily know why. I think he got I think he got arrested right before I really started putting a lot of time up there. You got framed before you went up there, I think. Is what you're looking for. <laughs> Legend, yeah. There's only 80 million missing. I mean <laughs> Euro. Oh, 80 million euros. Yeah. Big difference. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, Is there's definitely a big difference in euros and dollars for sure. <laughs> For, for the record, too, Joe Jordan, you know, uh, uh, Rich is talking about picking up, you know, ahead of steam. That's now he had just won. That's his seventh fight he won in a row. So he's starting to clean up his record real good right now in this. Yeah. Street. You kind of hit your, you're hitting your stride. Big yeah, time. we're starting to understand it a little bit, you know, felt learning that, you know, you got to do, do, learn a little something other than being just a little tough, you know? So well, uh, I got a question, Rich. At, at this point, are you actually doing like, training camps or are you just fighting all the time well that was one thing my whole career I, I i probably did five training camps my whole career and oh, wow. every one of uh, every one of those training camps i lost actually <laughs> uh, um so and they were all like oh and i i i really listened to people that was kind of my mistake they were like oh you should go here and you should do this and blah 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 and to be honest, like it took me out of my zone mentally. And, you know, the thing is, is that when you train with other coaches and stuff, they're going to want to implement what they like to do, you know, and it wasn't really, it was kind of changing my style. And I, I learned in the long run, but what I should have did was really did those camps on the, and, but I was fighting every three weeks. So I really didn't have any off time, Yeah, um, but but really, I I, sh I would have probably benefited more doing those as more of a, a, a just recreational training atmosphere, doing yeah. it on my leisure than putting pressure on me. Because here I am, uh, you know, when I'm getting ready for a fight, I'm going 100%. But when you're going 100% and doing a lot of things that you don't normally do, it breaks down your body. And I feel like that, in those instances, that kind of happened to me quite a bit. Yeah. Well, you, you were, like I said, fighting at a rapid pace. You only have two more fights in that year, and then you go on to fight. You make your UFC 41 debut. What was it like getting the call to, to, to finally making it to the big show? Yeah, uh, um, I, I really don't remember that moment other than, well, Monty, it was crazy because I don't even know why Monty asked. He should have just signed my name to stuff. But, you know, again, he'd be like, hey, are you interested in fighting? And the answer is always yes, you know. Uh, um, it's just throw me a name, you know. But, uh, um, but yeah, so it was it was exciting. Uh, it's so funny because it was at a time period. So Tim Sylvia, I, I think on that, was he not the main event on that card? Yeah, he fought yeah. Uh, Rico. Yeah. Me, <laughs> so this is how cheap and early in the, uh, 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 just talking about the sport in general, it was me and Tim Sylvia had to share a room. So they made, they made us they made us share a room uh and i remember i i hooked up with some girl and i made him sit in the hallway for like a few hours and i can't remember if that was like the night before the fight oh my god 
So, Terrible. Yeah, we 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 were for we were forced to uh, to share a room, and he was the he was the main event for a title bout. <laughs> wow, that's nuts. Yeah. So you fight Eve Edwards, and we had Eve on um, about over a month ago, about a month and a half ago. And, you know, we asked him, you know, what was your motivation for that fight? And he, he knew right away. He said, well, when, when Rich fought Pete Spratt, Pete said to himself, man, 170 is too big for me. I got to go down to 155. So that means I am going to be the guy that he thinks he's ready for at 155. You can tell it like, like whatever gym activity he was supposed to do it multiplied it by two or three yeah. just that little tiny statement like pushed him so much harder what was like you, you had mentioned it was a lot different then than it is now obviously what was your experience like yeah i just for that specific fight and it's not that i was nervous but i definitely put too much unneeded stress on myself wanting to perform and you have to understand that it was like right at the beginning when I started being managed. So it was like my first time up at Pat Militich's. So I'm doing just these, you know, three day a week workouts up there. Everything <sighs> is like, you know, and that's the problem. This is what people don't understand. Like I'm going to say this to get, if any young fighters are, are, are watching episode stuff is that there is nothing that is like a deal breaker, you know? And, and I, I remember telling myself over and over, like, Everything is hinging on this moment. My whole life is going to change. <laughs> I'm going to move to Iowa. I had this whole big grand like idea of what the end result of this amazing, fantastic experience is going to be. And then it turned out to be exactly none of that stuff. Uh, um, so um, I just put way too much pressure on myself. And I didn't have anybody really guide me through that. And I was putting a lot of pressure on myself training up there, you know, and, and, and there was a lot of tough guys that I was training with too. So to bring that type of intensity for, you know, I think I was up there for like six weeks, sleeping in Monty's basement, you know, it was train, sleep, eat, train, sleep, eat. I mean, it was, it was just not a good place psychologically to be. And by the time I got to the UFC, I was wore out, man. I just really was. It wasn't that I was overtrained. I was just mentally exhausted. How did you feel about fighting Eve? Because uh, Eve, because uh, you guys, <laughs> you, you would know each other from the from the, the southwest scene, your know, southeast scene there, yeah. Texas, Louisiana, and stuff. He knew about your rep. What 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 have you heard about Eve at this point? Yeah, no, I just, I, I mean, he had a lot of respect. I mean, that's that's the whole thing. Like back in the day, you could look at you know both hands, and you could talk about the top guys on there. And then it, it kind of fell off after that, you know, so there, there was a reputation amongst guys in your weight class that, you know, you guys walked in a hall and you gave each other kind of a little funky look because you knew you were fighting each other. Like there was no like 20 guys, 30 guys to choose from, you know, if you were a top guy, you were fight. It's guaranteed that you're fighting each other, you know, might not be this year, might not be six months from now, but it's going to happen. And, uh, um, you know, he was, uh, um, he was really good. I, I think it was, it was kind of at the top part of his career too. You know, when we, it's <sighs> funny and I've seen some articles about this and, and I, I, I know it to be true just from my own personal experience, but, you know, fighting is very much on a scaled mountain type trajectory, you know, and you have a small window where 
you kind of peak, you're, you're rising up, you peak, you stay there for a little bit of time and everything's a decline after that. And I really feel right around that time period for Eve was like his, that was really his time to shine. And I think I was still uptrending a little bit, you know, I wasn't quite uh, um, at, at, at where I felt that I was my best in my career. So um, it was a great learning experience. And, uh, um, you know, I, I came back after that experience extremely hungry. And, and that, that re-energized me as well, too. I, you know, basically I had a little reality check. Hey, I got to rework myself all the way back up. And it brought me back to kind of my roots, to be honest. If you look at your corner, it's, it's, it's literally a who's who. It's Jeremy Horn, Jens Pulver, Matthews, and Monty Cox. Yeah, the problem is, though, to be honest, none of those guys were there for me. You know, and just the, the reality of it is, you know, they were there because it, they were Tim part of the Yeah, they, they, I mean, there was no real emotional connection between it. I mean, me and Jens are pretty good friends, you know, and, and me and Horn got close over the years, uh, decently anyway. But uh, um, besides Monty, those guys could give a rat's ass. They're probably signing <laughs> autographs and taking pictures during my fight, you know? Hmm. Yeah, no, it's no, that's that's just you know the brutal reality of the fight yeah. game. I mean, that's it is what it is. Yeah, you know, it's it's sink or swim, and it, it, it includes your teammates. Um, so in the middle of the corner, like in the in the corner, I love listening to the conversations. You kept mentioning this is you're at one fifty five. Obviously, I think this is your is this your first fight or second fight at fifty five? I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's your first fight. Um, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I believe it's your first fight. And in between the corners, you're, you're mentioning to them, I can't believe how strong he is. Was that due to the weight cut, do you think? No, and that strength scene because he was stopping my single leg um, is just bad technique at the time uh, um, that I was doing to finish that. So I was exhausting. I mean, he was just squirrely. So it seemed like no matter what I did to hold on to him, he was able to get out of that. And, and I, I like to say that I'm a very physical, strong guy. Um, so his elusiveness came across as being strong with me not being able to implement my strength on him. So if I was saying that, it was probably more out of frustration uh, because of that, to be honest. Man, Eve Edwards, wow. I mean, he's just a special fighter. I mean, him and Josh yeah. Thompson, as far as I'm concerned, that's a 155-pound title fight. And obviously he won. So, I mean, he fought a world champion. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah oh, no doubt. Got a few of those on my record. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah, that's good. Yeah, good. I mean, it's legit. What do you? So you have another regional show in Mississippi, and then you go and fight for Z, uh, ZST in Japan against Hi Hiroku Katani. Uh, yeah. Uh -huh. you know? yeah. Am I right? Yes, you're. You're actually. Well, right. He's got a brother. He's got a brother, Hiroki and Hiroyuki. So yeah, you got Hiroki. Thank you. <laughs> Rich, Rich, the abuse I get for my pronunciation of names. Oh, no, actually, actually, that was amazing. Considering it was pretty good, wow. Rich. Actually, no love for both of them, both the Katani brothers. So you're uh, both I'll, I'll let you yeah. take us there. Like, go. Yeah. So, so, uh, Chris, just curious. Do you know anything about the Zest event? About what? The the, the Zest event, ZST. It's special rules. No. Yeah, so so some really amazing guys came out of the promotion, specifically like Imanari in particular. Yeah. Um, so in this event in Japan, um, and they have funky rules, so you could only elbow to the head if you wore their kind of elbow pads <laughs> in their fight, right? But uh, um, they they made it where you could not use closed guard, 
So it made for a lot of action on the ground, which was cool, except they had a bunch of leg lockers in their organization. Yep. So um, close, not being able to close guard on a leg locker is like tough business, you know? And then you weren't allowed to punch to the head on the ground. So you could But you could elbow with a pad? Standing up. Oh. <laughs> and this is a tournament, I might add. I, I, I should have framed it better. This is an eight-man tournament. So, so wow. and this, this is a fifty-five club member. This is a sixteen-man tournament. Oh, it's a sixteen. All yeah. in one night? No. So it's they did one round prior, and then it okay. went down to an eight-man tournament. Okay. So, uh, um, but prior to that, and I, I'm I don't I'm surprised that's not on my record actually. Uh, um, but I was the first American ever to do because uh, uh, they did crazy stuff over there. Uh, they even had three three men on each team tag team matches. But I was the first American ever to do a, a tag team match with Jeff Kern. Jeff Kern, yeah. yeah. So wow. let, let's concentrate on this tournament. So future UFC vet, 50 Fight Club member, kind of the poster boy for the organization. He's 12-0-2. You somehow win a decision in his hometown. Oof. And, wow. and Chris, as we have talked about in the Pancrase, even though it's a different organization – Miguel pointed out it's kind of a rite of passage to get a little cheated over when you go to Japan no, when, you know, you're, when you're a foreigner. Yeah. You must have killed Did you guy. experience that at this point? What's that? Did you experience any tilting of the table at this point there? Oh, absolutely. So my very first time with that organization, I, I get there, right? And, and they signed me this party guy, right? And he's like, oh, Tokyo Rapungi, Like, I'm going to show you all around. I got all these Russian girls. <laughs> I open up my my folder. I had 5,000 5, yen in there, whatever it was. And it was like, go out and have a good time tonight. This is the night before my fight. Uh, so, of course, what do I do? I go out and have Rapungi. a good time, right? <laughs> Rapungi did the right yeah, thing. Go to, to Rapungi. Uh, um, but, uh, um, so it's not necessarily like they were cheaters over there, but they did things to try to influence. And that's actually, yeah, that's that's actually one of my favorite moments in uh, um, in that I had in MMA because when I fought that tag team match, Jeff Kern broke his arm right away. Like he blocked the very first kick, snapped both arms uh, bones in his arm, oh. and uh, um, he I didn't know it, so he tagged out. I I'm fighting for a little while. I go to tag him back in. And he, uh, uh, he like goes to decline the tag. And I'm like, what are you doing, motherfucker? I'm like, you're getting paid the same as I am. I'm like, tag in, I'm tired. <laughs> so, so he tags in, but he instantly drops the guard for, because obviously he didn't want to stand up and, and hurt his arm more. And they got him into a leg lock. So I wound up fighting both guys for about another 12 minutes. And the way the rules are, if they don't have a lot of action on the ground, they would just stand you up. So every stand up, they got the, the tag back out. So they just kind of wore me down like that. And then uh, the older, the younger brother, who's the better Katani, uh, and he fought in the UFC a few times and stuff like that. But um, he wound up catching me late in deep water, like 12, 13 minutes or something like that. And um, then they promoted him as beating me, you know? So when the 16 man tournament came, I told the promoters, I was like, look here, I don't give a shit how you put me in the tournament. All I want to do is fight this guy one-on-one. -on -one. And that was like their poster boy. So I really beat the shit out of him in that match. And what's cool is when the match was over, they came and they brought me. I was blue corner. And in, in, in Japan, the coloring's very symbolic for them. So they said, they, they, they gave me the red gloves. They said, we want you to switch corners and we want you to be the red corner. And we as an organization want to see you win the tournament.
And, wow. and over there in Japan, that's like, especially because I was always looked at as the bad guy when I was over there, because I was over there a few times first, to have them like embrace me as like their guy uh, um, and show me that kind of respect was really cool. Because they, I think they felt bad, like kind of promoting him, saying that he had tapped me out and stuff, knowing the situation, you know. But again, that yeah. was their guy and they're playing the game. So I get it. Well, well let's, let's go back to the tournament. So in the second round, you fight another person that's high on their list of people to push, and it's Tomomobi. Yeah. Iwami. Miguel, you hear that? Excuse me, Rich. Miguel. Miguel. Uh, there's no I at the end, my friend. It's Iwama. But we'll leave it at that. It's all good. It's all good. We're, help, right. we're, helping, we're helping Mike with his Japanese, Rich. That's all. Yeah, sorry, Rich. <laughs> Rich, Rich, you know, you know, like the classes in school where the kids all take their books to one class and when the bell rings, they just kind of stay there. Yeah. Yeah, they, they don't switch classes. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of what we're dealing with here, except I'm on the receiving end. <laughs> yeah, I, I won't make fun of you because I promise. <laughs> I'd be right there with you. Trust me. <laughs> so you, you've got another high profile Japanese guy in the second round and he's six and oh, he's undefeated and you've already went to a decision. And in this fight, take us through it. Yeah. I beat the shit out of that guy. Like yes. it, was, it was, it was a really great fight. I don't even remember yet. I mean, I just like, I was just so much physically. And that's one reason I liked fighting a lot of the Japanese guys. They just weren't physically strong. And that's nope. why I think they, they, they just never really did all that well against Americans, especially American wrestlers, because they couldn't handle that, that pressure and intensity. They're not used to, they don't train like that in Japan. They're, they're very flowy and artsy and, you know, they just don't have, have that type of attitude. And, uh, um, I just remember that guy, like in between rounds, I looked over and he's like, fuck, you know, and I was like, yeah, I like that. <laughs> um, so I, I don't, I, I don't think I tapped him out. I think it was a decision um, because the time was a little shorter and stuff like that, but, uh, that was a great fight. I mean, I just, I mean, it was a beautiful fight for me to be honest, a lot of like jump knees and things like that. So, uh, um, it was just a pretty fight, very active. So, so you're, you're saying it was a beautiful fight, but you know, from the luxury of my couch, I'm looking at a guy that's in a, in a tournament and you've got two decisions. How was your recovery in between fights? Because that's gotta be draining especially with the flight. Yeah. I, I really didn't look at things like that, to be honest. You know, I just, I, I was never one really to worry or overanalyze things, you know, I just go out there and do what I do, you know? So, uh, um, I, I don't recall being overly exhausted more so than any other time. And, and just to even go back in reverse a little bit, when I, when I fought that tag team match, it actually was a huge growing point for me because I was always worried about letting it loose in fights. Like every fighter I think goes to that to some extent, like they, they, they're never a hundred percent balls to the wall from start to finish. You know, it's just, you try to get out there, you try to make smart decisions, not just completely blow your load. And then after that tag team match, I said, I would never play the reserve game again. I'm like, fuck, if I could go against two guys for 12 minutes, I should always be able to fight one guy for that length of time. So, so <laughs> it really helped change my attitude to be honest. So in the finals, Miguel, he meets hook and shoot champion, Marcus Aurelio. Ooh. Man, dude, yeah, I, you know, Marcus murderers row. 
Marcus is real good, you know, and he 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 did have our belt at one point. He's also a little bit tough to deal with, and and that could be another insight as to why they wanted Rich to win. Hey, no Japanese guys left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, it would have been easier for them if Rich had won than than Marcus. But like, you, uh, Rich, take us through that fight. What was he like? Yeah, that, I fucking cracked my orbital again, man. Uh, um, oh. I got. I, I got caught with a stupid, uh, um, like, change-level shot overhand. And, uh, um, you know, again, it was the same injury. And that, that one actually worried me because I kind of lost vision a little bit. And since it was the same eye, uh, I'll be honest, I, I, I probably could have fought a little bit more, but I panicked because of the injury a little bit, to be honest. Uh, um, I regret that, to be honest. I, I wish I would have... Um, you know, brought that a little bit in deeper water, not saying there would have been a different outcome because he was hell on wheels at that time as well, too. He was, he was really a tough guy. And I knew that out of all the guys, if I, I met him in the, the finals, he would be the definitely the most challenging specifically because of the rules. You know, you get a jujitsu black belt on that level where you can't punch him in the face on the ground <clears throat> or he doesn't have to worry about that. That's, that's tough business. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And, you know, the, the thing is, it's uh, you can sit here and say, I wish I fought a little bit more, but you may have saved your vision as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, no doubt. You know, and still, I mean, at the at the caliber of that tournament, you know, I mean, there was a lot of really good guys in there. Uh, um, and, and so, it, you know, looking back on it, you know, even to get the runner up spot on that. Um, you know, still proud of that, man. That was, that was just a great experience. And, um, you know, something that even today, I don't, I don't know if any, a lot of Americans are even able to replicate that type of experience going to Japan that many times and being embraced by the community and, you know, having that grassroots organization like that. Uh, uh, it was just, it was awesome. So when we had Carlo Prater on, Rich, I'm, I'm just going to be very direct with you in regards to this. He fought in a kickboxing bout with that of yourself and at the, the, the eight man tournament. And I know, obviously, you and Melvin Gillard have had, like, a history, a documented history of butting heads. <laughs> We're buddies and, now, just for the record. Pardon me? We're buddies now. Okay. But <laughs> at the time, there were some problems. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, yeah. And would, was this start with you beat Melvin in the finals? And Melvin was, like, really a, a cartoon character of what a fighter, you know, who was kind of like a WWE version of a fighter because he had the Snoopy you, uh, shoes on, you know, he had, you know, the, the bright, bright red colors. Yeah, you know, there was a lot going on with him. Very boisterous. Yeah. So take us through your encounter with Melvin, because from what I understand, you guys fought on the street a few times as well as in the UFC. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, I tried to help a bunch of guys out locally, and and I had a show. And um, unlike uh, uh, Monty's events at the time, I tried to make it where if you were a local guy, you probably had a, a, a um, you know, a sixty percent chance or fifty five percent chance of winning. And as long as you did what you were supposed to do, you would win. But so I I, I put together good fights where you get experience, but then also to build your reputation at the same time. I basically took my experience and tried to alter it for these guys so i started bringing and pushing guys up um from louisiana by doing that and i did that for melvin quite a few times he fought on my shows and you know we trained together and i, I personally put time and in investing in, in making him be successful just because you know it pissed me off where 
kind of Louisiana had this reputation where if you fought a guy from Louisiana, he sucks, he can't wrestle, and you're going to have a pretty easy fight, you know? And and I was helping changing that culture, and we just started putting some guys on the map from here. Well, when he got on the Ultimate Fighter, you know, now he's the biggest, best guy in Louisiana, and we just knew that wasn't the case, you know? And he knew personally <laughs> that wasn't the case because that was me. And, uh, um, you know, he started <laughs> – he started doing a lot of chatter on, on, about, you know, things. And, and, you know, some people were, they were probably, you know, putting, putting fuel on that fire on purpose, you know, but, but anyway, he was really getting ahead of himself and we trained together numerous times. And, and I, I can't think of one training session where he ever came out on top. Um, and especially that kickboxing match that we had, you know, I knocked him out with a, um, I think I, I hit him with a jump knee at first and then, uh, um, you know, knocked him out with an inside like hook uppercut combo. But um, he, he, it wasn't, a, it was more like flash knockout, but he didn't continue, needless to say. But, um, but yeah, so we had a long history and, uh, um, you know, it was just, he, he just wouldn't shut his mouth, dude, you know? And it just got to a boiling point. He sucker, he sucker punched me at an event one time. And um, what's funny is a lot of the things that I was doing for Joe Silva, I told Joe and I was like, look, I said, here's the deal. I said, I'm going to say yes to everything you say, but you're going to put me on a main event card with Melvin sometime down the road, you know, <laughs> and one, one of the, one of the best times of my life. Right. I, I mean, some people of you ask like, what's the toughest thing you ever did. Right. So Melvin comes up to me, we're at MGM and he apologizes to me. We're in line. He's getting ready to fight. I'm cornering somebody. And he says this thing, and I said, look, Melvin, I said, I appreciate your apology, and I'm not going to be gangster hood like you. I, you know, I said, but I'm going to accept your apology, but I do want you to know that I do have conversations with Joe Silva, and I'm not going to be okay until I embarrass you and mentally put something in your head that you're not going to get rid of your, for the rest of your life, and I'm going to do it in front of millions of people. So I stuck out my hand and, like, shaked it, and his whole face was, like, white. He didn't know what to say, but um, Suge Knight was standing right behind me, and, and, and Suge Knight touches me on the shoulder. He goes, man, he's like, that was gangster. So I feel like when Suge Knight tells you that, <laughs> that that's gangster, you know what I'm saying? Like, that puts you on a certain level. You know, yeah, I, so um, at that point, our fight was shortly after that, actually. Yeah, so. yeah, I'm not sure that that's an acceptable apology, like response to an apology. Absolutely. I mean, it was it was honest. Honesty is <laughs> the best line, right? It's not what you want to hear, though. No, <laughs> no. So at this point, you won, career, you won that fight that day, though. <laughs> oh, 100 percent. I won the fight. He always knew it, though. That's the whole point. Like, and, and a lot of people, like, so, so many people just, you know, it's like, when it comes to fighting, okay, you have the people who are about it, and that's why they fight, and then you have people that fight because they want to prove that that's who they are. You know, and don't get me wrong. I don't necessarily think that that's Melvin by any means, because because he 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 he's a fighter and, and he's, he's got legit. a ton of experience. Yeah, you know. But but for a lot of guys, I see that. You know, uh, um, and, and that's easily to be exposed. So, you know, you- I, I, real real quick, I noticed a lot of the fighters are fighters. They love everything about fighting except for the fight. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> They love the lifestyle. They love the fan. They love all the money. They don't. They don't like the actual grind in the fight. And that's yeah. that's you get a lot more of that nowadays than you did back then because it was still around, but not nearly as much. You had to kind of embrace the grind, and I think a lot of those people, everybody did. But it, it, not, you could tell the ones who just 
want to be a fighter or if you love fighting. 100%. Did you ever fight on those Battle of New Orleans cards? No, I didn't actually. That's That was like kind of uh, um, one of the guys that helped uh, uh, bring Melvin up. Uh, uh, he was a, he's a promoter, uh, Joey the Butcher Boy. He was an old school boxer. And yeah. those were like little local shows that he used to put on over there. But they would they would get drunk guys out of the the crowd and put them against yeah. Melvin. And I mean, oh. he would just assassinate him, dude. I mean, just <laughs> I, I don't even know how somebody didn't get killed on those events. Yeah, Melvin kind of brought it. Told me a story about how him and a few family members after it was like seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth fight or whatever, because he was kind of becoming like what Shoney Carter was here in Chicago at the Tropicana yeah. in essence is what Melvin was doing at, at this event. And, um, and it's a, essentially they talked about, I'm not going to call it a robbery, but I'm just going to say maybe a check was written. that might not have been a hundred percent consensual <laughs> with the amount on it. Yeah. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah. So at this point you get on Miguel Adorate's radar and you start fighting in euphoria. Miguel, yeah, love, was that planned? Was that planned, Miguel? Uh, you know, I, I, I got to upstage you guys somehow. Is that, is that the late entrance? Okay. No, no, no. So, I just went to refresh my drink. I'm glad I made it back. That's right. So you, you start fighting with Miguel on euphoria. Miguel, how does, how does Rich jump on your radar? Where well, does he come from? Monty, Monty, you know, um, at this point, I had a little bit better show. We had a little bit better budget. We could get a little bit better people. Monty was helping. Um, you know, th this show in particular is one of my favorite shows of all time. Were you doing, did you do the USA-Russia show, or did you come in right after that? No, this is me. This is I, I, I just wasn't sure if you promoted that specific. You were the matchmaker for that card. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I was. And it was one of my favorite ones because yeah. um, and Rich's fight is, is was like actually a critical one in the pulse of the day, if you remember. Um, Bruce, Bruce Buffer listed it as his favorite fight of the year, actually, that year. Yeah, I, and, I, and I, I, you know, we it was America versus Russia. Uh, first guy, the American was was a little bit better, obviously, and he won his fight pretty easily. Second fight was Justin Eilers, and he wound up like getting thrown out of the ring and had a, had a real rugged fight with a guy and won. Then Ron Faircloth got knocked out in 10 seconds, and this this fight, you know, we're looking for an American needed to start a run here, and Rich, Rich wasn't going to lose a second fight in a row for that locker room. Yeah, I sort of remember that. What Miguel's not saying, this was the most crooked ass event I've ever been to. So <laughs> um, they, they play the national anthem in it. And where was that at? Was that at, it wasn't at Trump's, huh? Yeah, it was. was it? it was Trump. Yep. Okay. So in Atlantic City, and they, they play the American national anthem, and you expect the American national anthem, right? Well, anyway, the way that it's supposed to work is if you're going to play two national anthems, you always pay, play the American national anthem last. Well, they flip-flopped that. So I didn't even know the Russian national anthem was going to be played. And when they played the Russian national anthem, I swear to God, 99% of the audience were, were Russians with black leather jackets on. And that place was rumbling. I was like, what the hell am I in, like, Moscow right now? It was like the whole organization at the time. And I, you know more specifics than I do. But it was heavily Russian-based owned 
with a lot of involvement with that. So when they said USA versus Russia, the audience was almost completely Russians. I know nothing. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm not scared. It was no, I'm scared I'll, to I'll speak you, about it. I don't know. I'll tell you. And he's he's right. I do remember a lot of those moments too. Um, the the bottom line is is that Vlad was Vlad Lavrinovich, a Russian, was the promoter of record. Actually, his wife was. He was not able she to get a promoted. Too, remember her? Yeah, yeah she, she was, was a very beautiful woman. Like, very beautiful. But um, he wasn't able to get a license from the New Jersey Commission because he had problems uh, on the casino end and things like that. They really go through your books in Jersey because I'm sure it wasn't on his end. I'm sure it was an error on the casino. There so go was, ahead. There may have been some typos there, but you know. But so, anyway, so his wife served as a promoter. And then from there, you start. The, the bottom line is, is he knew a guy who would come and gamble like about three to five million bucks a weekend at those shows. That's all the casino cared about was that they bought their high rollers in from Russia. And he did market to the Russian audience in that market. And yeah, most of the tickets were sold to Russians. So it, was so it, had, it had that, it had that event, that, that kind of feel. But I think for the psychology of it, the Americans very much like, you know, circle the wagons in the, in the locker room stuff. And it became a momentous night. And like I said, so, so let's talk about the that. first one. <laughs> uh, let's let's talk about that. So, Chris, this is a phenomenal fight. So, in essence, what takes place is Rich gets dropped several times in the first round, and yeah, it's I'm probably like four of us. <laughs> Who, who's he fighting? Who, who's he fighting? He's Sergey Goliath. He was a Russian Muay Thai champion, super fast, knew how to punch going backwards the whole time. Uh, um, super tall too, um, and super mean uppercuts. Like I, my favorite picture that I have to date is still I'm getting hit with an uppercut, and I don't think my head can extend back any further. Like it is all the way like where the back of my head is touching my spine. Like, like when, when Overeem got hit by Francis Ngannou. Yeah, I, I mean uh, it was. It was bad. It was bad by all means. Goliath, Goliath was pretty legitimate. He owns. He later on uh, captured a win over Takanori Gomi, which you know Ooh, is wow. is a pretty legendary win. And uh, you know there there are other big big names on his record. I stuck him in later with Joaquin Hansen, and so he went zero and two for me. <laughs> so Rich gets hammered that first round, and it's ugly, but. Like you're talking about grit earlier in this, this interview where you talk about grit, fortitude, understanding who a person was. When you see him face adversity, this is your fight. Like this is the fight where you, any questions you have about Rich, you just watch this fight. It's probably going to be answered because <laughs> at the end of that first round, you got the takedown. Like you got it. You did it. And then when the bell rings, like you got up and you know, rather than kind of like, oh, God, what the hell was that? In your head, you go, I'm going to win. I got it. You can see it like in, in your eyes. Like it's like your confidence from that one takedown, no matter you lost four, you know, four minutes and 50 seconds of that first round. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> but that 10 seconds told you, I got this one. It's like, I'm tough. I can be here. I can withstand this. And in that second round, you get the takedown. And while ground and pounding, um, Sergey throws a dozen illegal punches or kicks and punches. It's illegal knees to the back. I had him side mounted. 
Yeah. And uh, um, he's pushing on my face, hitting. And he, remember, this is a guy that's like six foot something at 155. So you know he's got these sharp ass little knees. And uh, he's pushing my head up and just kneeing me in the back of the head. My my uh, uh, um, my pupil stayed dilated almost for two months after that fight. Jesus. <laughs> So yeah, it was, I was lacerated, huge, big laceration on the back of the head. Uh, um, they, they was pissing me to fuck off. Rich is bleeding like crazy. He's yelling at the referee. He's kneeing the back of my head. So the referee's like yelling at him to stop. He doesn't stop. So at this point, the referee's like, stop. Brings him over to the corner. Has the corner translate. He even deducted to a point. <laughs> never, never deducted a point. Thank you. They bring him back, they set him back down. First thing he does is that yeah. yeah. And then he never take a point again. And, and dude, it's I go berserk. That's one time I really got pissed off in a fight. Like I really lost my shit at that point. Uh, um, and just started freaking out, dude. Like I, I was I, I had some extremely aggressive ground and pound at that that point. <laughs> yeah, so and, and he continued. Yeah. Like he didn't care. He continued, he didn't care what the referee was saying, he was gonna do it anyway. And, you know, you stepped up your ground and pound, and you also hit a triangle, which was incredibly smooth. Yeah, that was a great what, fight, actually. Yeah, We're, we're still sure. friends on social media, actually. We follow each other. He's, he's actually a pretty cool dude, man. He was a, kind of a dick after the fight, too, though. I'm a dick, too, after most of my fights. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that. I mean, it's the same thing. Like, I can respect that that that. That dick measuring contest, and that, that's the type of that's the type of guy he is. You know what I'm saying? So uh, um, I can respect that, and and I that those are fights that either way I feel alive after. Like every, I mean, I, I'll tell you, like I was so happy going home after that, you know, and just um, that's that's why I did what I did, man. You know that that those type of fights for sure. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, he he cheated. He did everything he could. And still couldn't win. That's the buzz, Rich, that, that Rich yeah. is talking about, I think. You know, yeah, some guys <laughs> in Rich's situation will keep fighting. Like, oh, you keep fouling, you keep fouling. Well, I could keep fighting too. And, you know, Rich didn't. I mean, it was, you know, like you said, it became from, it was a, a test of your will. You won. All right, keep being a jerk. We're still cool. Doesn't matter what just took place there. It, it takes a special individual just to kind of, push past what it is you experienced because man you got hellaciously fouled yeah yeah no it was uh, uh I, I i i actually love there was another fight later on i had with a guy kind of similar attitude uh reza mendati but i love those in the same with melvin like those type of like really emotional fights I like that. That's just when I do my best, man. I, I just absolutely love them. Like the worst thing you could do is get me riled up like that. When you make it a sport and kind of, Hey bud, good luck to you. I don't bring my A game. <laughs> Excuse me. Very interesting. That's, that's interesting. So, you know, um, Rich, there's certain rules we have on the show at benchmarks. And I have to mention this one. Otherwise I will not hear the end of it from Miguel. You end up fighting Miguel's favorite fighter on a last-minute notice, uh, Henry Matamoros. Wait, before you answer, Miguel, please tell us about Henry. <laughs> Go ahead. Again, tell us about Henry, Miguel. He's my guy. He's my guy, you know? Well, I appreciate that, Miguel. I appreciated that fight. Yo, yo, yo you know what? I mean, I, you know, looking back at it, too, and to be quite honest with you, Henry was uh, 
a creature of the '90s, and I think Rich had him pretty, pretty heavily outclassed in this fight. <laughs> I, I was, I, I was told that I was the first 10-7 round in New Jersey history, actually, at, for MMA. Congrats. Here we go. He survives. Well, here I will even say this, Rich. If you were slacking off on your cardio because you saw the match, or you you took it last minute, like you took the here, you took. I think I was at this one, Miguel. This this was in New Jersey as well. Am I correct? Yes. Okay, I think I was at this one, and I remember hearing it was last minute, and it was Henry Matamoros. Obviously, I know who you are, and I've seen Henry fight locally about a dozen times. I was thinking. Rich, what kind? I don't know what kind of shape you are in. You know, when you're off season, you know, you're not you're not in training camp. But I, I thought Henry would take a hellacious beating and, and probably pull off the win in the third round, just because it's a last minute fight for you and he can take yeah. a punch. Yeah, no, that was that was just a that was the best slams I ever hit in in any fight. I, I need to get a hold of that video because I'd like to show my sons those actually. <laughs> but I mean. I just, I mean, they, they were like 180 degree, like invert body locks, just bouncing him on his head. Like it was, uh, um, and Your he hooks too. What's he that? threw some monster hooks. Yeah. He, he uh, that was just a great, great fight. And the production was great on that too, Miguel, whoever you had to do the video work on that, um, just did a phenomenal job. Why was Rico Rodriguez in your corner? Um, I didn't recall that he was, to be honest, but, uh, um, yeah. Probably because he lives in New Jersey, then. Yeah. Probably the only guy I knew that was up there. And and Miguel was probably trying to cheap on uh, flights or something like that for cornerman. Part part of the deal. Did you, did Miguel um, ever stitch you on any money, like 50 bucks? 50 bucks. Yeah. No, the only guy to ever stick me on uh, uh, money, and I don't mind saying this, is that, uh, what's that Canadian's uh, promoter's name? Sven up there? Stefan Patrick? Yeah, a little cocksucker. He he stick, stuck me on money. And I cut down to uh, uh, 45, too. Oh. Whoa. So, yeah. And I'm definitely not a 45-pounder. Was that against <laughs> Fabio Holanda? Uh, no, no. So And that's, again, too, that cheating bastard. So he, uh, um, if you notice, if you look at his record, and, and what was that guy's name that Holanda beat right before we fought? Uh, Coulter... Coulter Gill, maybe great Coulter up and comer, man. That guy was a stud, man. But um, yeah. anyway, what uh, uh, what Holanda would do is that, and I like the guy. I, I, I'm friends with. I mean, these guys are part of your life, you know. So so now you kind of watch him, and you know you hope the best for them and stuff. But he was notorious for missing, grossly missing weight. And then Sven would just say, like, my guy went and, like, was, was spying on him trying to cut weight. And this dude just walking on the treadmill for five minutes, come up, and he's like, oh, well, he's at his match with some weight cut. He's good to go. So what he would do is he would take the pay deduction just to win, you know, have a severe advantage, especially a jiu-jitsu guy on that level. Weight's a big deal, you know. And uh, um, he would just take the cut because – he was training St. Pierre and all these guys at the time. So promoting his wins, promoting his jiu-jitsu academy brought him in way more revenue than just the penalty that he had to pay for the weight cut. So when we fought, I think he was almost like 25 pounds or something like that overweight when we fought. Wow. Fabio Holanda, you know, just to kind of, for everybody to recall, when we interviewed Sam Stout, the TKO years, Fabio, like his level of jujitsu is insane. And he's, the Brazilian top team head coach for Canada and Stout even said, yeah, I know it was going to be a hard first round, but 
like, I can't even make weight. I just had to wait him out. You know, he was talking all types of crap. And that's what happened he was, to me too, actually. I, yeah. I, I knew that I just had to bring him in deep water. And I had a very tough first round. Yeah, Stout called him lazy, actually. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I, I agree with, I could agree with that. Yeah. I like Stout, like, too. He's a great guy. Super good. exchanges. It, it, he, like, if you look at Fabio Holanda's record, one, it's upside down. It's terrible. He's got a terrible record. But then when you look at the guys he fought, dude, it is deep water. It's yeah. just stud after stud after stud. And, I mean, say what you want about the guy. He wasn't – he may not have made weight, but he missed weight against real tough opponents. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, why don't, why don't we close up to Euphoria? Um, you fight one more time, um, USA versus the world. You fight another Japanese guy, Daisuke ha- Hanazawa. Oh, Chris. Right on point, man. Right on Daisuke point. Daisuke Hanazawa. Man. Look at Mike. Look at hey, Mike killing him. Hey, I love Mike. me. Part of the game. Go ahead, brother. No, I said you practice on that. Oh shit, dude! I just I hear it tomorrow from Miguel anyway. <laughs> that's 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 thirteen who lived with Dave Strasser for a couple of years later. He yeah. fought for me too. Yeah, and uh, he also fought uh, Eddie Alvarez. So uh, the disappointing thing about this to me is that when Rich beat Matamoros, that was the start of an eight-man tournament. And the other winners of that tournament, it would have been Rich against Hermes Franca. And the other side of the, of the bracket was supposed to be Joaquin Hansen and Eve Edwards. And, and I believe, I believe that for the time was a pretty dangerous tournament, but it didn't progress past the first round. And Rich was obviously, you know, already, you know, given a lot to the organization. So we had to bring him back, even though I couldn't, you know, we couldn't get the Hermes fight. So Hanazawa was a guy that was came over for, for us a lot. And, you know, everybody gets motivated to fight. He originally already had a lot of experience with the Japanese fighters and stuff, but this was supposed to have been Hermes Franca. Yeah, that was, that was a really tough fight for me. Uh, um, I, he had me in more of an Eddie Bravo, uh, a lockdown. And I don't like that lockdown for MMA because you lay flat on your back. So it really makes you susceptible to punches. And I really feel like that's why a lot of Eddie's guys, even though they're all great at jiu-jitsu, they don't do that well in MMA because he bases a lot of his style of groundwork off of that type of lockdown. Great for jiu-jitsu, great for rolling under, makes you really susceptible to get punched a lot. But with that being said, I was coming off a really bad staph infection in my leg. I probably should have pulled out of the fight, uh, didn't, uh, um, but, but still went forward with it. And um, the same knee that that I had the staff in, he he locked me down, and I I, I really felt everything tear in my knee. Uh, um, I make it from the the end of that round, and I, I come back, and Monty's my corner, and I said, Monty, I'm like, I really think I messed up my knee bad, and he's like, Oh, okay, you know. So I go out there, and I, I go to throw a kick, and my whole knee just rotates around sideways, and uh, um, I felt it like pivot on the actual joint. The whole thing just slid like that, and uh, uh, I fell down. And instantly, then I knew I like tore everything in my leg. And uh, uh, what's funny is when you watch the video, the commentators are like, "Yeah, Rich must just feel really confident in his guard because he keeps just working his guard." Blah blah blah. And I come back after the second round, and I, I'm, I'm my face is white. I told Monty, I'm like, my knee is fucked. 
And uh, Monty's like, look, I walked around the ring. He goes, I looked at all the judges. And I don't know if he actually did or not, but he had me convinced that he looked at the scorecards and all I needed to do was make it out of this next round and I would win a decision. So, uh, um, you know, with that, with that being said. He didn't leave the corner. Yeah, good corner. He did a great job, man. He did his job, you know. Um, but I, I won an ugly decision, but I was out for seven or eight months after that because I had to get reconstructive surgery on my knee. And uh, that was very challenging for me. That was the longest break I had since I started doing this. And, uh, um, you know, I was in a, they used my own patella tendon, uh, ACL, MCL, medial collateral. It was all torn. And, uh, um, you know, I was out for a little bit of time because of that. Wow. A lot of people wow. didn't know that. I just kind of slid it under. I was afraid it'd be used against me later on in the fight game. Yeah, to, to be honest, I didn't realize that that type of repercussions came from that fight, man. I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I guess. I don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, in, in between then, you had a, a schedule bout with Eve Edwards that was canceled because obviously your injury. And they bring you to Extreme Challenge in Iowa due to the fact that Chris Mickle was in the UFC, he needs one win. He goes back there, comes in in his karate pants. (laughs) Comes in in karate pants, and Rich does exactly what you're supposed to do to somebody, you know, in gi pants. I don't want to just do that. I I don't remember much, except there was like two or three really hot girls sitting right cage side, and I purposely brought him over to right where they were sitting, uh, um, and then I'm talking to them as I'm like ground and pounding him. I, I just remember one really, really huge slam right at the beginning, like iconic slam and then just keeping him against the cage and talking to these girls the whole fight. And, uh, um, just till the fight was done pretty much, but it, I, I really, it didn't have much more substance than that, to be honest. Yeah. It was pretty fast and furious. Like it was yeah. one-sided and ugly. And yeah, I might also add when you fought Fabio Halanda, you weighed 158.8 and he was 162.6. Yeah, that was a lie though. That was because the first time he weighed in, he was like 70 something. And my 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 cornerman watched him go cut weight. So when they came back and said, Oh, I watched him weigh in at 162, will you still accept the fight at a pay deduction? It was a complete lie. That like no doubt about it. How much did uh, Stefan Petri stiff you for? Uh, so I was supposed to fight a 45 pounder. I don't recall his name, but he was the top 45 pounder at the time. What was his name? Uh, um, Is it Yeah. Uh, no, was it Menjivar? There was another, maybe it was Menjivar. It was either him or another guy that was right there kind of at the same. It might've been Menjivar. I don't remember, but anyway, was it, it wasn't Hamnick. I mean, Hamnick was 35. No, no, it, it was a guy with the same type of complexion as Menjivar. Like, and it might've even been him. I don't recall. But anyway, when I got there, they said I was too big and they declined me fighting, but I'd already made weight. Uh, um, so I was expecting to at least get my show money on that. He's promised me that he would pay me on it. So I made weight, flew up there, stayed up, there, you know, did the training camp and stuff. It was a high, high profile fight. Um, and then uh, um, I never received any revenues from that. Mm-hmm. So it's what it is, you know? Yeah. Wow. That's rough. Now, Josh Rafferty was in your corner against uh, Fabio Holanda. Would you mind describing your relationship with him? Dude, I love that dude, man. Seriously, he he truly is like a brother to me. Um, It's one of those things that me and him could not see each other for years. 
and uh you know we get back together he's just a just a good guy man and uh loves martial arts is still uh, uh he had a, a severe neck injury he had to get neck surgery about two years ago but um he he does a lot of private training with the team uh, really involved in uh, um mma and stuff like that I mean, uh, wwe wrestlers training those guys and stuff but um, just a great guy Okay. So you also have one of the unique things that I see on your record. And like I said, we're not touching too much of the UFC stuff here due to the fact that, you know, we'd like to have you back on again. And yeah, we're at about the two hour mark right now. Um, dude, he's got a catch weight win over Anthony Johnson. Yeah. you. Chris, you're okay. muted. Yep. Hold on. I'm muted. Sorry about that. Yeah, I remember that fight. I remember watching it because at one point they were uh, – David talks about me taking that fight, but we are both managed by Ken Pavian. <laughs> Rich, you, you brought your team up to Wisconsin, and, like, uh, it was in Milwaukee. Everybody on the card got stiffed, except I think you had an issue with the promoter where it might have been physical, but you guys got paid. Which promotion was it? Ah, oh, it was in Milwaukee. It was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You brought some of your guys up there. I remember being there, and there was no one in the audience. I think maybe it was Shark Fights or Shark Fin or somebody like that. But I, I remember, like, you weren't putting up with any shit. And, like, people, not everybody got paid, but I know you walked out of there with some cash. Yeah, I don't recall that at all. Yeah. <laughs> There's so yeah. many things that are just like, you know, uh, oh, it's just crazy, man. You know, it's like some of the stuff that I experienced, like when I look back at it now, it's like, it's like a different life, man. You know, it's like, uh, it's like I'm talking about somebody else sometimes, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's such a distant memory. A lot of those things, man. Okay. It make me smile. So we, Carlo Prater, we've had two people on the show that have fought Riza Madari. And superior challenge in Sweden. Yeah. He's a super hothead. How was your experience with him? So that is one of my favorite fights of all times. Uh, um, and, and what's funny is I headbutted the shit out of him at weigh-ins because he, like, got in front of my face and did that yelling shit, you know. And, uh, I mean, uh, that's – you're just not going to do that, you know. Um, but anyway, um, did, did you ever get a chance to watch that fight? I did, and I couldn't find it. Yeah, you, you need to, uh, um, and dude, I mean, I, I it, it, it's, 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 so first of all, they, they changed the weight when I got there. Cause I was told 55 on the contract, you know, and then what they did, they changed it to kilos, what made it 52. And they, they didn't tell me that until our 53. Um, they didn't tell me that till after I was getting ready to weigh in. So here I am already cut down. And when you tell a guy that's already right there that he's got to go lose two or three more pounds, I mean, it is like a dream crusher, you know? Uh so, so they gave me an hour to go do that. So then I did that. Then I get back and they go over the rules and then they get to my fight. And I'm like, well, what the hell are they singling my shit out for? They know that I was like a side mount guy and I love to drop elbows and work guys over kind of tight like that. So they go, oh, your, your guys is a, a, an international Sweden rules match. What the fuck is that? You know? And they said, well, there's no elbows on the ground for you guys. So I'm like, oh, okay. I see how. So you, you, you dig me on the weight. 
Then you say, you, you take away one of my best positions, you know? And, uh, um, and then I lost, uh, they, it wasn't even a split decision. It was a unanimous decision. And that's what me dropping him in the first 10 seconds of the fight and controlling. It was like the Ben Earwood fight. Almost my transitions in that fight were, they were, it was the best I ever moved. And I mean, there was not one thing that he would do to me that I would turn right around and do better than him. So it was so bad that actually the audience was throwing stuff in the ring and they were booing. And you just at an international event like that, if you're the guy coming in, you definitely don't get that response on a decision. Um, yeah. And it was so bad. We protested to the Sweden uh, commission, but uh, my fight and also Jeremy Horn's fight. And I don't recall what Jeremy Horn's fight was about, but uh, um it was it was just straight robbery to be honest. It, it, I don't feel it was even close. Yeah, Jeremy yeah. Jeremy uh, lost the split decision to Talis Latest. So they were doing a Brazilian versus American matchup there, but I think if I'm not mistaken, Talis may have had yeah uh, yeah like jujitsu like you yeah know, he, had a, he had a gym that he was yeah. affiliated with there, and then the same in my match, two of Riza's. Uh, uh, his manager and then one of his other training buddies were the two judges selected for that fight too. So I, I was I was really pissed off because I was looking at like that was kind of like a great fight for me to kind of make my mark and make my splash back in. And then he got signed to the UFC right after that fight. Mm-mm. Yeah, he but, he cherry picked his opponents like uh, Carlo Prater. Like this is like you you just gave your example. He takes the fight on like two days' notice. He he flies in, doesn't even get to go to the hotel. They bring him right to the venue, and he's off by like three or four (laughs) pounds. And Riza went ballistic on him, calling him all types of names. And he's just like, I I I got on a plane. I I went from one city to another city to another city. I haven't been. I really didn't even go home yet, and I haven't been to the hotel. Yeah, and he said Riza was just uh, you know out of control, but he was a real nice guy after. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't. I'm, I've always been a fan of Carlos Prater. Uh, that wasn't one of his best performances by any means, yeah. but it could. As he said those, that too. Yeah, yeah he it mentioned could have been that. Some of those things uh, um, uh, that were wrapped around that, you know. But the the event itself, man. Oh, I had so much fun into it. And they're still running pretty successful events. I mean, I, I chime in every now and then and I see, but the production's great. You know, uh, um, the, the, I, I had a blast over there. I, I would probably uh, fight today if they call me and said, hey, you want to fight in Sweden for a few times? I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> cool. cool. Well, great we time. did your pre-UFC career. You know, Rich, at some point in the future, we'd love to have you back. You know, clean up your, you know, clean up and get your UFC bouts out of the way. But, man, we really, really appreciate you being here. Yeah, no, it's awesome, man. And I'll tell you, I appreciate what you guys do because um, what you do is, and I'm I'm probably not the only one that's saying this, but, um, you know, these type of experiences, like, there's, there's kind of a history, a time period that, you know, the, the, the fights were on VHS, man. You know what I'm saying? Like they, there was no YouTube or anything like that. So really you guys are kind of uh, uh, conserving history, man, on, on a time period that wasn't really all that well documented, you know? So to hear some of these guys and, um, you know, some of the things that happened, I mean, I look back now too, man, and you, you, you go back and I, I don't remember, 
I did it about a month ago, but you know, the, all the guys in the community that have like passed away for whatever reason, some super tragic stories and, and stuff, man. And, and until you talk about these guys, it, it's just kind of forgotten, you know? Um, so, so what you guys are doing to preserve history and, and the sport and, and to pay homage to, to some of the things and the events that help build this thing is, is, is just awesome, man. And, and I appreciate your guys' time. Well, Rich, man, I appreciate yeah, you might be one, one of 50 we listeners. Got... <laughs> we, we, we can't afford to lose any of them. <laughs> well, like you were saying, the reason we started doing this is all these cool stories are old school stories, and they're going to die off if we don't record them because, yeah. I mean, those cool stories are so crazy. People don't understand what it was like. These new guys have no idea. It was the Wild West. Yeah. And so uh, it's like talking to people like you and people like, how did you get here? What was your story? I mean, you're never going to find a guy who just started fighting right away. That's just not how it works anymore. So I love it. And thank you for being here. Yeah, it's awesome. And I love what you're doing with uh, Bare Knuckle Boxing too, Chris. I'm a big fan of the organization. Uh, um, I really, I haven't been to one of the ba a bad fight with those guys yet. Uh, I'm totally entertained. And it was funny. I was at a fight in uh, Mississippi and uh, um, I was with a group of friends and, and one of the fights really had me riled up where I, I stood up and, you know, I was kind of like extending, trying to see over the crowd. And one of the guys that were with me was like, Rich, he goes, I haven't seen you stand up in a fight in a long time, you know? And uh, <laughs> I think that kind of sums it up, you know, on, on what that event's about. And uh, I really, really enjoy those events. So I love seeing you behind that. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's entertaining for me, for sure. Hey, come anytime you want, man. I'll get you. No matter what, we'll get you in. You know that. So. Yep. Awesome. Rich All right. Lights Out Podcast. Rich Clementi is in the books. Mike, another good one, huh? Another great one. I, I, you know, every single time you run into a guy like Rich Clementi, people go, well, you need to have him back on again. And it's like, okay, but you said it with John Fitch. You said it with Dennis Hallman. You said it with Jeff Monson. You know, you said it. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you give all these examples. Even Hector Lombard, who obviously we just had. Um, what we're going to do is wait till we get our 100th episode, and then we're going to come back around again. We're going to try to get 100 straight guys, you know, different people, men and women. And then we're going to uh, kind of get the different portions of, of their career. Yep. And I think, you know, Richard was a great ad in that I think he delivered on a lot of different facets that we talked about where – you get the idea of the fighter. You know, I was surprised they didn't have as many full training camps as I have, but I think as, as other fighters, but I think that that's one of those things that he had promoting, you know, and doing all kinds of other things going on too. So very interesting. Uh, you know, talked about back issues and a few of the injuries and things, and he's uh, smarter than I am in terms of the medical stuff. So definitely there's a lot of angles, a lot of cool stuff besides the old school fight stuff, which he delivered in spades too. So I agree. I agree. Excellent. Well, guys, please like, share, subscribe. And, you know, we're, we're going to you know, keep this truck moving forward. You know, we're on to the next interview.